Hey everybody, welcome to Row Hunting Resources Podcast. All right, uh, for this week, let me tackle a few questions that have come in uh, over the past, well, a couple weeks now. I've answered a bunch of, uh, as always, I answer, if you have a unique question, I'll just probably answer it through uh, email or social media, but every now and then, multiple people have the same questions, so might as well talk about them publicly, because if more than one person has it, then there's probably a few more out there that have it. Um, and then there's other ones that are, I think are just interesting to just tackle regardless. Um, so that's what we'll do today. There's a couple of the questions that, that have also come in uh, about some of the bigger issues. I'm not going to tackle them tonight. I'm going to save them because I think there may be the possibility of do, having a, a deeper discussion on a couple of them. But uh, we'll just tackle a handful here tonight. And then, uh, yeah, as always, you know, I, I, I say this all the time. You know, I'm mostly on Instagram these days as far as a social media platform. I really don't check Facebook that much uh, anymore. It just, I don't know, it's just Facebook to me just has gotten tedious and it just, I don't know, I, 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 I just kind of enjoy the interface of Instagram these days and I've gone through and weeded through a bunch of my accounts, people I follow, uh, people I pay attention to and it's just, I don't know, I just enjoy engaging folks on Instagram a little easier. So if you want to message me, just do it through Instagram because that's probably where I'm going to see it first. Uh, if you send something over to Facebook, it'll pro- I'll probably check it once a week and then I'll, I'll get to it there. Or you can just always send me a, an email, just chris at rowhuntingresources.com. All right. So, um, yeah, go ahead and follow me over on Instagram if you want to follow on social media. Uh, and that's just... You know, Instagram's going to be where I'm at, for at least for right now. If I if I change, if I go anywhere else, I start adding. Uh, you know, people have asked this to get put on Spotify. Man, I, I'm I'm not going to lie to you. I'm torn. It's like every one of these platforms these days is just um. It's probably a longer discussion. You know what I'm talking about. I mean, it's just every platform now is just being attacked. It's just, it's just a, a, it seems to be just taken over by the woke mob, if you will, and from censorship through Google, from censor, censor, censorship through Facebook, censor, man, I can't say that word at all tonight, can I? Censorship. How about we just say censorship? Censorship, 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 censorship. We're the best friends. Yeah, anyway. Censorship on all these platforms is just absolutely egregious. And the fact that what's going on with Spotify right now is just, I mean, again, it's just the, the, I don't know. It just, it absolutely drives me batshit crazy. And I just don't, I just don't know how much I want to support some of them. Obviously, I just said I'm on Instagram. Well, that's owned by, you know, Metaverse. Um... It, it just it, it just sucks because we just don't have many other alternatives out there. But then by the same token, we don't have to associate with people that are actively um, going against what I, my value set. Let's just leave it at that. My, my, my constitutional value set. So I don't know. I, I've. I started looking into the Spotify thing, then then all this stuff started blowing up again, and I was like, man, I just, I don't know, I don't know, I'm I'm still doing some thinking. 
I don't, I don't have an answer for you. I don't have my, my head wrapped around it. I can see the pluses and minuses. I can see the pluses of doing it. And then I can, then I just have these principle, just on sheer principle. I just have a visceral reaction of, of saying, screw it. Um, no. And then I don't know. I haven't made a decision yet, but if I do, if I end up getting on it, if I end up putting stuff on a different platform, you will obviously be notified and it'll probably be a notification through either Instagram or it'll be um, on the podcast. So yeah, there's that. So go ahead, give me a follow over there if you want. And then, uh, yeah. So let's just dive in. All right. So first and foremost, and this is this is one that, uh, well, actually, let me, okay, so yeah, first and foremost, deer, water, uh, I had posted and I, I've posted numerous times over these past several weeks, or well, heck now, at the, the past several months now, how dry it's been out here in Northwest Kansas and what we're dealing with and, and the deer and everything else and, and the ice and the water and blah, 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 blah. One of the things that I that I, I'll get comments and people will ask me, and you know, they you know they say, oh well, I've got friends in you know such and such Kansas or whatever, or I I know it, I I I've got I was out hunting in Kansas, blah blah blah, and it, it it's it isn't that bad, or it's oh I, you know they they're not saying it's that bad. Okay, you've got an entire gargantuan state. Not all areas of Kansas are created equal. Um, and quite honestly. Um, I mean, this is, I guess, I mean, how this could be a, probably a podcast topic all of its own, but, um, no, I mean, Kansas is known for, for great deer hunting, great turkey hunting, great, uh, upland bird hunting, but that changes and is different across different regions of the state and even locally, uh, in different areas. There's a reason why when I, and I've, I've told this story before, uh, when I first moved here. The one of the landowners I work with is very well respected in the world of agriculture, and he's traveled all over the place, uh, consulting and uh, presenting, and um, he's always on the cutting edge of, of what's going on and, and trying new stuff and, and trying to pioneer different techniques and, and just make things better and easier and more efficient for him and and others. And so the guy knows what he's talking about, and and we were talking about my my job, my career field, and what I've done in the past, and and you know, speaking and traveling. And, you know, we were talking about, you know, he also was in the world of banking for a while. And he said, you know, it it is interesting as far as consulting and and going out and and teaching people in different regions, different things, because in many ways, in most topics in life, you can become an expert. And oftentimes, and I remember this from the Primos days, that the further, you know, from a hunting standpoint, the further away from home you go, it's almost like your prestige goes higher. Your your assumed knowledge goes higher. Your assumed skill set and value set or value to those other people that are going to go listen to you increases the further away from home you go. Because obviously, if if I'm I'm going to talk about deer hunting or I'm going to talk about whitetail biology or whatever. And someone from Wisconsin has me come all the way up there. Well, geez, oh, Pete, they, they brought me from a great distance to come speak to them about blah, 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 or elk. If someone, 
has me come up to Oregon or, or Idaho or whatever to come speak to them uh, regarding elk. Back in the day when it was Primos, you know, I'd go up to Wyoming or I'd go down to New Mexico or whatever. It did. I mean, it just seems the farther away you go from home, the more of a quote-unquote expert or more value you have to impart for others. All except for farming. And really, in, in what one of my landowners said, he's like, nope, for farming, you go past about 30 miles, you're an idiot. You don't have a clue in the world what you're talking about. Unless you're just talking about like plant, you know, I'm going to talk to you about soybeans and how soybeans grow and what we're finding with soybeans and these herbicides and these fertilizers or corn. This new variety of corn, we're going to teach you about this type of corn, blah, blah, blah. But if you want to try to teach somebody to, you know, about, you know, no-till farming and the benefits of this, that, and the other thing or whatever, it seems like the further away you go, if you go beyond about 30 miles, all of a sudden your, your value set just starts to decrease, unless you're talking about in generalities. You start to try to talk specifics and your credibility goes right downhill. Why? Because conditions on the ground are wildly different. Soils are different. Uh, landscape is different. Your weed issues are different. Your moisture cycle is different. Temperature and humidity can be different. Your te- it, all everything that affects how plants grow can be wildly different. Just thirty minutes away from you, and especially the farther away you go. And from a habitat standpoint, that's why I started. You see me with a lot of my whitetail stuff and the turkey stuff. You see me hashtagging the Western Plains whitetails and the the full the part of it that I'm I'm probably going to roll on the um, uh, website is going to be Western Plains whitetails and wildlife because there's so much that's that's talked about in the just just let's just focus on our uh, on the whitetail folks here a minute, okay? Everybody knows if you follow the the whitetail circuit, if you will, and, and whitetail habitat type stuff, um, especially if you watch it on YouTube, there are you're going to know the name of of Grant Woods. You're going to know the name Bill Winky. You're going to know the name uh, Jeff Sturgis. You're going to know the name uh, the Drury Brothers. Okay, you're going to know Primos. You, you know, but from a habitat standpoint, you're going to know Jeff Sturgis. All right. You're going to know Dr. Woods, right? Well, that's great. That's fine. But if you look at where the bulk of their activity is focused, it is in the center Midwest or with, with Jeff Sturgis. Maybe it's, you know, you, you go that Ohio, Pennsylvania. He travels all over the, the place as well. But when you look at regionally and you look at the moisture cycles and you look at the habitats and you look at, you know, the things that those guys are dealing with anybody that's been out here in northwest kansas or western part the western range of the or the western plains knows that we're not dealing with oak stands hardwood stands areas that have good soft mast areas that have you know old fields where you just you know, just just let a field get just just let a field go and and let it come in and and all the you know fifty different species of plants that that come back in. But that's not in many 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 cases. That is not this world. This is that's not what we deal with out here. Again, our moisture cycle regime 
we're we in our area i think we range our average is between 20 and 24 inches of moisture per year annually and that's a combination of the thunderstorms in the summer the fall rains winter snow and spring rains okay 20 to 24 inches hell some of these guys don't get me wrong i like watching some of what jeff does i like watching dr woods i like following along with midwest whitetail well especially when bill was doing it I, I, I enjoy following along some of these other people and what they're doing, especially with habitat stuff, because it does give you ideas. But then you have to be able to translate that to your own area. You just can't come rolling in and just say, oh, this is what I'm going to do. Because I'm, there's a reason why I bought a $13,000 machine that is going to no-till drill food plots in the ground. Because we just don't have the mon- or the, the moisture to do half of the habitat stuff that other people do because our annual moisture cycle is less than their drought years the, the the amount of the amount of things that you can do when you have rain is incredible okay well we don't get rain even on a good year okay and then really the case in, i mean to to the real point for us Yes, some of you said, oh yeah, I was out here hunting and, you know, we still had, you know, water in the stock ponds and we had that. Okay, yeah, but you're talking, you were an hour away from me. You're, hell, 30 minutes away from me or two hours away from me. Okay, again, things can be wildly different. And for whatever reason, I don't know. And we've joked, several of us out here have joked about this. I don't know if someday, sometime back in history, someone either blessed the the little town of it, it's the city of Logan but the, it, it's it's literally the size of your little finger I mean it there's several hundred people in here that that's it so it's a tiny it's a town little town either somebody blast this place so that way it would not get hit with tornadoes and vicious you know hail and everything else or someone cursed this place so we just wouldn't get rain. Because either way you slice it, I li- okay, a, a good chunk of our moisture annually comes typically from the summer monsoon rains. That flow that comes out of the Pacific Ocean across uh, Mexico and the desert southwest of the United States. There's moisture that comes up out of the Gulf of Mexico as well. And then it just rolls out across there. And, and those storms, you know, if you're in Colorado, you see in, in Arizona, uh, northern New Mexico, uh, Colorado, you know that those just thunderstorms build, and especially once they spill over the mountains of Colorado and New Mexico, and they hit the plains, man, they start rolling, and there they go. And a lot of times they're tracking at that diagonal direction, kind of east northeast, and they roll right across Nebraska, Kansas, Oklahoma. Okay, so they're they're rolling that way. So that's a big chunk of our annual precipitation on normal years. Well, we're in a La Nina year, so we haven't had those, uh, excuse me, haven't had those rainstorms coming across this year, very much like almost non-existent. But even more importantly, we can literally sit here, you know in the house or get up on a hill or whatever you'd sit there and watch the radar and you watch these big thunderstorms roll and here they come they're coming out of colorado they're coming from the west they're coming from the southwest they're heading right at us and i don't know what it is 
It's like eight miles out of town. There's some invisible force field, this bubble that's over Logan. Because that you you could watch the radar and you can watch the 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 lightning and just just flashing and going nuts. Here's this just wall of orange and red on the radar saying, okay, you know, we should be getting an inch or two of moisture or whatever or three or whatever it is. Just massive downpour thunderstorms. And like eight miles out t- outside of town, it just splits. It just whoop, just it, it part of it will go north, part of it will go south. And yeah, we might get a half inch, uh, three quarters of an inch, an inch. Maybe we get an inch and a half rain or whatever out of a particular storm. But I go 30 minutes north of me, they've got three, four inches. I go 30 minutes south of me and they're just flooded. There's massive hail, just massive amounts of rain. And then all of a sudden you go about eight miles east of us and it's like the, the storm just, it goes around that bubble and it just comes back together and just, I mean, just inches upon inches upon inches of rain, just downpour when you get those massive, massive thunderstorms. For some reason, we're in a little spot that it's crazy how so much stuff goes around us. So yeah, you, it doesn't surprise me if the folks of you that have contacted me that said, "Oh yeah, we were well, we were you know hunting just south of you. We were about forty-five minutes south of you, or an hour south of you." Yeah, and that makes absolutely. I believe it because I watched the rainstorms go running across that area or north of me, up especially north or northeast of us up in Nebraska. Heck, you go about an hour northeast of us in Nebraska, I think they had record rainfall, uh, seasonal rainfall this year. Whereas if you go 30 minutes to 45 minutes northwest of me up on the, the, the Kansas-Nebraska border, I mean, geez, oh, Pete, they're just as dry, if not drier than in many cases than we are. So it's it's crazy if you don't spend a lot of time in diverse air in, in multiple areas on the landscape, it can you see something on social media or you hear something and you're like, well, that just doesn't jive with what what I'm seeing. Correct. But when we're talking about weather systems and we're talking about rainfall, when we're talking about moisture cycles, when we're talking about soils and agriculture and best management practices and weed load and and all these other things, it is so site-specific and dependent. Yes, you can have broad strokes. You can have general ideas about what you're going to do with habitat and food plots and, and putting water out or water managing for resources on the landscape. The art comes on how you dovetail that into your specific regional and in, in literally area-specific um, conditions. And so, yes, I understand that other people are like, oh, well, we still had you know water in, in the stock ponds and we still have water in the creeks. And Okay, good, yeah, I, I believe it. Tr- I, I Trust me, I believe it. Um, for our little area, there, it's, I'm sorry, we've, it's, it's just popcorn fart dry and it's just brutal. I mean, from the, you've seen some of the pictures that I posted, uh, regarding the, some of the food plots that I have, they're just, they're just dead. They're just dried up and just, I mean, it's just sad. I mean, the plant itself, if I go to the winter wheat plots, especially so like the, the, uh, the turnips and the peas and, and, uh, not turnips, but let's just say brassicas. There's multiple that I've had. You know, I've got a, I have a diverse mix in a couple of my food plots, so there's a variety of different uh, broadleaves out there. 
you could you're good luck you can find the shriveled up leaves of the brassicas and you can find the the shriveled up you know small you know tubers that are still out there um again our deer don't touch uh brassicas to save our lives the only reason why i put brassicas in the mix because a i want to try some new ones b just from a, a a diversity standpoint and just soils but anyway um the only thing that you really can find out there that that still has some green to it we had i do have some clovers that are down tucked down in there that you can you can find that still has a little bit of green to it and then our winter wheat most of the top of the winter wheat uh for my food plots anyway and again, it's site specific. Some areas were the way that the 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 food plot was prepped, and what was in the plot prior to me planting makes a world of difference. Um, so some of the plots that were just sitting idle all summer and waiting for a fall planting to go in, they came up and did very very well. Other ones that had stuff growing in the summer that I that either was terminated or whatever doesn't matter had stuff growing in the summer that were planted they they started to pop and then they've dried out really quick just because the stuff that was growing in the summer grew it grew that soil dry and and there was less soil moisture for those plants to grab onto than the plots that had nothing growing in them excuse me nothing growing in them pretty much all summer but regardless you're you have to just kind of in in many cases there's places where you've got to reach down, you got to kind of paw down through some of the dead, you know, material on top and you can find that, yeah, the center growing point of the plant is still alive. It's, it's still kind, it's got a that greenish yellow, it's still hanging on. And I think the roots are still hanging on. Um, but, and I think it'll bounce back somewhat this, this spring. Um, but man, it's, it's just brutal. It's, it's just brutal in some of the places that, that we have out here. Um, yeah, so you, you can't just judge, you know, you just can't look, because again, I know Kansas, everybody watches, you know, YouTube or whatever, and like, oh, Kansas is a great place for, you know, and everybody just kind of thinks it's a, they paint the, the thing with a broad brush. That's not how it works. I mean, we have vastly different habitats, vastly different landscapes, depending on where you are in the state. And that's no different than most other states. Well, not, not, not I won't say most. It's vastly different than what you'll find in many other states. Let's just put it that way. Um, and so for the case of the water, yeah, I'm still running water. And, and I was talking, you know, I shared pictures and had some chit chats back and forth on comments regarding me, you know, whether I wanted to bust out, bust ice with an ax or not. And honestly, I did. I went out the other day on that one cattle tank and we had a nice warm day. So I took the splitting mall out there and busted some big chunks out of it and, and uh, opened up that water. And it was like, yeah, an hour later, hear the, hear the deer pile into it and just start sucking it. You know, they were, they were grateful. Um, but two things. One, a couple of you recommended some ideas about, you know, putting black balls, you know, these, whatever, whether you were talking about the rubber uh, dodgeballs or other balls. The, the dodgeball idea I didn't think about, and that's that's interesting. I'm just kind of curious about what that rubber would do if I just if you leave that rubber ball in the water, is there going to be any uh, leaching of chemicals, or if there's going to be any contamination? I don't know. I that, but it's interesting though because that rubber does absorb heat, or would absorb heat, especially the black ones. It would absorb heat. Number one. Number two. 
it's it's heavy enough to where it probably would not get blown out of the tank. So that was a that was a good that's an interesting one. The but I have thought about those uh, like black balls or some uh, version of that. I watched a documentary uh, regarding well, no, not a documentary. What am I talking about? It was on a YouTube channel called Ver- Veritasium. I, I I like that channel. It, the the guy there does a really good job and it's educational. They were talking about uh, black balls that were dumped across a, uh, I think it was L.A. water source, uh, a reservoir for our water uh, source for the for Los Angeles, one of the reservoirs. And it had, a, I think, a bromide issue and, and the solar radiation was causing, mixing with the, some of the chemicals was causing a bromide issue. And so they needed to shade it out. So they used black uh, plastic balls. I, I don't remember how many tens of millions of these black balls they put across this entire reservoir to shade it out um i was interested in those but yeah let's just say it i i haven't i haven't settled on anything yet but something like that something floating either either those plastic balls or rubber balls or some black something that can float at the on the 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 in the surface of that stock tank or the, or just my water tanks that can absorb heat, melt that ice, allow the deer to kind of push it around and, and get some water, but then cover it back up to where it just kind of reduces that ice cover. I It's got merit, man. It, it definitely absolutely has merit and I'm still um, looking into it, but I am, the idea about the, the, um, Handball. Well, there was two handballs or uh, <clears throat> dodgeballs, little rubber ones. <clears throat> That's not a bad idea. That's not a bad man. <clears throat> of course, now my voice is gonna get squirrely. <clears throat> but anyway, so that that's why I enjoy having those comments. So by all means, if you watch the posts and engage them, if there's a question in there or if there's something that intrigues you in there, chime in, man. I mean, you might have information that I don't. Quite honestly, you probably do have information that I don't. All right. So I appreciate that. But, oh, and then the second part was, is they were saying, well, okay, well, Chris, if you said that there's water in the creeks like that, we're, again, the, we're kind of centrally located along the North Fork of the Solomon River. That is flowing and has water in it. <clears throat> and then there's a creek up north that has water in it still, one of ours. And then if you go south of here to along Bow Creek, and there's, there's, I don't know if Bow Creek has water in it. We, we don't have any properties directly on Bow Creek, but my guess is it probably does have water flowing through it. Um, why don't the deer just go there? Great question. The issue is, is you got to remember is how many miles we're talking about between these major drainages and not, there's been times when even the Solomon River has gone dry. There's only little pools and pockets of water along that sandy creek bottom, you know, the river bottom for, I mean, I'm thinking back to a few summers back where, you know, you could find water along the river bottom scattered every, you know, there would be a pool and then 300 yards away, there's another little pool and then maybe 200 yards, another pool, and then maybe four or 500 yards down the river, there's another pool, some of them big, some of them small. So even then it can get a little spotty. But 
when you're talking about some of these tributaries and some of these, like the river right now, we're good. It has enough water in it. It's still flowing. And then the creek that's up north, that does have, a that still has some just, I mean, it's not deep. I mean, the, the water, even though the creek itself is probably 20, yeah, 20 to 25 feet wide, depending on where you are through it, the water column that's flowing through it is probably depending on where you are, but just the flowing portion, probably, oh, two feet, maybe three feet wide in the bottom, and maybe in certain places, maybe an inch deep. It's just, it's just, a, it, it's flowing, but it's just a little bit right now. So they're saying, okay, well, what, then why don't the deer just move and go to those places? If they can smell water, which they can, and I've talked about that, they can smell it. Why don't they just move to those places that they have water? Great question. The distance between some of these water sources is is exceptional. I mean, we're talking many, many miles. All right, number one. And number two, if you you got to remember, deer have a home range. It's not on unlike how you have your house, your neighborhood, <clears throat> and your generalized larger community. All right. So you think about it day to day. Other, well, I guess no. Let's just let's just put it there. Well, shoot, you know, with commutes, it's a little different. For, forget scale. Let's just let's forget scale for a minute, as far as miles or distance or anything. Let's just think about your house and where you work, or your house and your you know where you work and your gym. Okay, you spend the, the bulk of your time in your house and at work, right? That's that's where you spend the bulk of your time. And then you've got your you you branch out a little bit more and there's the place where you you have your house, you have your work, maybe you have your gym, you have your grocery store that you normally use, you have the place you normally get gas or fuel. Okay, so you've kind of got this this area of operation, this this home range if you will where you spend the vast majority of your time. Most of the time, when you go get fuel, when you go get gas, you get it at a certain place. When you go to the gym, you're going to a certain gym. When you go to a grocery store, you're going to a certain grocery store. When you go to work, you're going to a certain certain location. Does it make sense? That's not unlike how a deer's home range is. They live in a, a particular area. Let's just arbitrarily say for, you know, especially out here, maybe now it doesn't matter because ours are linear corridors and that can be a little bit even, even trickier, <coughs> but let's say it's, uh, like two and a half miles by two and a half miles square. No, just a two mile by two mile square. That that's, that's the deer's home range. Okay. Four square miles. 90% of everything that they do is inside that four square miles, but Sometimes when it gets really tough or, or seasonally, maybe during the rut or maybe during, uh, you know, fawning season, or, you know, summer, what, whatever it is, seasonally, maybe they stretch that out and there's a, there's a, there's a outer perimeter that's nine square miles. So maybe they add a mile. So it's three, three miles wide by three miles deep there, that, that area that they live in. That's where they do, so the, the two by two is where they do 90% of all their activity. The three by three is where they do 98% of 
of all or 99% of all their daily activity or or just yearly activity. This is where they spend their life. This is their home. This is what they know. Number 1. Number 2, deer, different deer have different personalities. And different the way the landscape works and and how everything lays out it can either encourage movement of deer or it can discourage movement of deer in certain directions. Also, it has to deal with the age of the animals that are on the landscape, especially the does. Are they an older age class animal where they have maybe 10 years of experience on how to move across that landscape and find resources when the when things get bad? Or are they a two-year-old doe that has or three-year-old doe that has never experienced anything like this and she's never had to step foot out of the 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 two by two four square mile home range. So, some the reason why you and, and you'll find both, and and I'm seeing both right now. You're you find some deer, they just they are going to stay inside that home range, and they're just going to eke it out. They're going to do the best that they can inside that home range, and maybe let's just say let's just take the three by three block, the nine square mile home range area in that nine square miles maybe in the past you know there's like 10 different water sources that they normally have access to and if there's a creek or a river in there that usually has water well they're going to know it but if out here we're on the western plains there are many areas that are the reason why the deer are here is strictly because the agriculture has allowed them a foothold and has given them food and gives them water. They're they're eating primarily crop-related food sources, and they're drinking water sources that are generally maintained and or managed for cattle. They're in the upland areas away from creeks. They're in the upland areas away from you know river systems. They're out in the middle of nowhere. The reason they're there is maybe there's some waste ground. There's maybe some brushy pockets and maybe some tree corridors out there, you know, tree, tree patches and, you know, plum thickets and whatnot, CRP or whatever. But it's it's agricultural row crops for food and cattle stock tanks or stock ponds that normally have the water in them. Well, if those stock ponds start drying up, and then all of a sudden the cat, you know, out, out here, it's not uncommon. Certain cattle producers will, they don't keep their cattle all year round or they'll at least move their cattle in the winter to a feedlot. And so you end up having cattle on the landscape from like May 1st to November 1st. So that's generally when you have stock tanks running. You, this winter, we had some other neighbors that had cattle well off, you know, well into January. So the entire uh, system of cattle tanks and, and all the water hydrants and stuff were still running well into January. But as soon as a cattle producer pulls his cattle off of the landscape, if they do, oftentimes they don't keep those stock tanks topped off. They'll turn the water off turn the entire well system off and drain everything, winterize it because they don't want the pipes to break. They don't want the, the lines to break and they don't have cattle out there that they need to feed anyway. So they just shut it off. And so the deer end up sucking dry whatever water that they can find in those tanks. So in a nine square mile area, maybe that deer, that group of deer that are living in that that generalized home range 
Maybe they typically have 10 resources that they can pull from. Well, on these dry, dry years, maybe all of a sudden it just gets down to there's just one. Well, they'll fall back to that one and they'll utilize it as much as they can. They're just going to eke it out as, as best that they can. If that one goes dry, yeah, you're going to have some that just, you know, because this is a comment that I've seen, you know, people, well, you know, a lot of, a lot of animals don't need to have free drinking water. They can get their, their, their water, you know, basically metabolic water. They can eat food and extract the water, the moisture out of that food and get their metabolic water. Well, okay. Number one, that's a, that's a bigger discussion, but let's just put it this way. If you're going to rely on metabolic water, the vegetation that they're eating and the food that they're eating better have ample amount of moisture in it to where they can actually extract moisture from it. And when you have this level of drought where it's just everything is crispy fried, just popcorn fart dry dust, your vegetation is not going to have a lot of, of moisture in it. Let a, regardless if, if uh, and I guess if you're dealing with a pack rat, or a kangaroo rat, or whatever, but that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about whitetails. We're talking about turkeys. We're talking about pheasants, okay? Quail. Not that pheasants and quail need open, free water, but let me tell you something. The number of pheasant and quail that pound the piss out of the water tanks when they're available to them suggests that, no, maybe a pheasant or quail doesn't, quote, quote, need free water, but holy hell, will they use it if they got it? And metabolically and just physiologically, they're going to be better off if they're not on the cusp of just permanent dehydration. All right. Deer like and need water, period. I'm sorry. They do. Again, unless they're just eating on just succulent, succulent vegetation. That ain't the case out here right now. It's bone freaking dry. So yes, they want water. There's a reason why deer are coming up to a frozen stock tank and spending 15, 20, 30 minutes standing there licking ice, taking their bottom incisors and scraping ice with their bottom incisors and eating ice. It's, they're a little desperate. So some of those animals are going to stay in that home range because they don't know any better. They don't know where to, they don't know where to go or or they, they just, they tried, they'll stay and try to eke it out. But you will find some animals, and I think I'm seeing that here, where you will find them just striking out and pioneering across the landscape in search of water or better food. And I say that because, and I talked about this in a previous podcast, I think it was, I was talking with Jay Scott, Jay Scott Outdoors, um, about, oh, and speaking, let me segue real quick. Yeah, Arizona applications. Sorry, I forgot to mention that. Arizona applications are due here. Like Johnny, you you need to like, as you're listening to this, if you want to apply for Arizona, you better just hit pause and just jump over there and fill it out because, uh, yeah, you, it's, it's due my friends. It's due. Uh, and if you're confused about what you want to, you know, what unit you want to put in for down there, um, the best thing I can tell you right now, the best podcast that, that discussion on that again is on the J this is unsolicited. I haven't talked to Jason since he's been back from Mexico. Um, J Scott Outdoors, J Scott Outdoors podcast, the one go. Uh, it's been it's a couple podcasts back now. It's the one with Steve Chapel uh, talking about Arizona units. I think Steve Chapel has the the most comprehensive knowledge 
these days about the units across the state of Arizona, just because his outfitting business has grown. It's, 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 it's sizable enough to where he's got guides pretty much almost in every single unit every year. So he's got a lot of good information uh, that he's absolutely willing to share. So get on that podcast, listen to it. Uh, they had a good discussion. If you have questions, I know Jay's still taking questions from folks. Steve Chapel always does. He's a great resource. I think it's. I think he was saying that he's moving everything over to Elk Camp TV. Elk Camp. It used to be Chapel Guide Service. I'm sure if you type in Steve Chapel Chapel Guide Service or Elk Camp TV, it's going to bring up his website and his contact information. You can always reach out to him, and, and he loves answering questions for folks. And then obviously, if you've got questions, I can answer some, especially if it has to do with Seven West or Unit Nine. That th- those are the two areas that I'm most familiar with. Uh, but Anyway, regardless, I, I, I just wanted to segue real quick because I thought of this. Yeah, applications for Arizona are due, my friends. Get in, get on it now. Get on it now. You've got just a couple days. Um, <clears throat> but anyway, I was I talked about uh, the, the, the idea of resident animals and transient animals in the face of brutal drought conditions. A couple years back when I was when I was guiding down in Unit 7 West, and we just had brutal, brutal drought conditions down in Arizona. And I saw it with elk. And just to recap, so in Arizona, if you're not from, it's, it, Arizona, obviously, you're talking about a dry desert, you know, type environment. You're the desert southwest. Yes, you got higher elevation. Yes, you got ponderosa pine trees. Yes, you get, you know, rainstorms and blah, blah, blah. Of course you do. But it can be generally drier down there. All right. You're not going to find most of the time springs just launching forth out of the side of the mountain. That usually doesn't happen. Most of the time it doesn't happen. Okay. That's why they have dirt ponds, stock ponds, which they call tanks down there. And they have wildlife waters where you have this big steel apron, basically a big flat surface of steel or concrete that's just a big flat pad that rain falls onto. It's you know, gravity flows, it sheets off this, channels into a little little uh, pipe. That pipe flows into big storage tanks. Those storage tanks, you know, the, you get a big rainstorm or whatever, it'll store several thousand gallons of water and then it just meters that water out a little at a time in these little tiny drinkers, those wildlife waters, what a lot of people down there call trick tanks. Trickle, they trickle out water from a big storage tank trickle tanks or trick tanks. Okay. Regardless, there's numerous designs of these wildlife waters. Some of them are the type that are remote enough to where, or or they're, and they're built uh, such that you really can't fill them, you know, by, you know, uh, it's, it's not something, how do I want to put it? It's not something you can just take a water truck up and you just fill up. It, It really requires rainfall. However, there are other wildlife waters out there that you could literally drive up with a with a water truck and, and a hose and just fill that thing up if the rain isn't cooperating with you, you know, for you. So several d- different designs of these wa- these wildlife waterers in Arizona, one of them is called a, a affectionately a step-in tank, all right? And a step-in tank is a big storage tank. Imagine a giant box. And I don't know what the dimensions are, but let's say it's five foot deep 
by 10 feet wide or 15 feet wide by 20 feet long or, you know, something along those lines. It's just a big, big steel box, all right? And most of the box is closed off except for like a four-foot or five-foot chute at the end where there's a ramp that goes from the top edge of the box all the way down to the bottom uh, of the box on the inside, all right? So there's this ramp, and it's got expanded metal or, or uh, angle iron or rebar, you know, welded to it to where animals can walk up and down that ramp and get good footing. Well, when the box is full, water is all the way up to the top. So the, the water level at the ramp is whatever water level is inside that box. The box just fills up with water and the ramp allows animals as the water recedes and there's less and less and less and less water inside that gargantuan box of a storage tank. The water recedes and gets lower and lower and lower down toward the bottom. Well, animals can just simply walk down that or they can step in to that box. They can walk down that ramp and they can just follow the water level as it goes by by walking down the ramp that's at one end of this big storage tank. All right, those step-in tanks. Well, what I saw during that year Again, exceptional drought, very, very little water anywhere except for what was in those wildlife waters, the trick tanks. And quite honestly, the Arizona Elk uh, Society and others were just constantly running. No, mostly those guys were just constantly running the water trucks, just filling those things up, trying trying to keep water in there just to keep the the elk and the deer and the pronghorn uh, and every other, you know, critter that's using it uh, just make sure they had water available to them. Well, what I saw was in some cases, I, you know, whether, and this is a great, this is, this is when you could run a game camera. Uh, and I'm going to touch on that here in a minute. That's another question that came up. So you run a game camera, especially if you run it on video, you can watch the animals come into those step in tanks. And there's some animals that they'll come in, and sure enough, I mean, they come in from the downwind side. They're smelling, they're they're testing the air, they're making sure it's safe. But once they feel that it's safe, they jump. And and these wildlife waterers are usually the the especially the step or not the step especially the the trick tanks. Those are not put in for cattle. Cattle do not or should not are not supposed to have access to those trick tanks. Those are strictly for wildlife. So there is a metal uh, barrier around these water sources that cattle cannot get into, but deer, elk, pronghorn can. Okay, and then other, and then all pretty much all the other wildlife critters can get in there as well. It keeps the cattle out, but it lets the wildlife in. So these animals, they'll, they'll, they'll you know, circle the outside, get down the downwind side. They'll make sure it's safe. But once they realize, once they feel it's safe, they'll jump that barrier and they just march straight to the ramp, right down in, get a belly full, get, get it, you know, quench their thirst or whatever. And then turn right around, walk up back, you know, walk back out the ramp and away they go. However, there were numerous times when all of a sudden you'd see elk show up and they do the typical circle, 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 make sure everything's, you know, kosher. But they jump the barrier, they'd come in and they would, they would be able to smell the water. They'd be able to look and see the water, but they had no idea how to navigate the ramp. 
They they just they had no concept that they could walk down the ramp to get to the water. And so literally you'd sit there and watch some of these animals just again on video just seemingly trying to puzzle out how in the hell because again these tanks are what five i don't know five feet deep that more i don't know but the what again there there's almost no water in the bottom of these things so maybe there's an inch of water in the bottom there these animals are literally sitting there getting down on their knees right down on their chest stretching their head as far down in that tank just trying to reach the water even though all they need to do is stand up, walk around the end, just walk down the slope. They had no clue how to get the water. And there was numerous times where you'd see them, they'd work, they'd work. I mean, they would blow up my camera for 15, 20, 30 minutes and then just never go down the ramp. They just walked off in frustration, seemingly, to where it kind of suggested to me that we were dealing with two types of elk down there. The elk that were getting water out of those step-in tanks, they walked right in. They they had used them. They had figured them out. They knew what to do. They had engaged those tanks before. But there's other elk because you don't find those step-in style tanks much anymore. They're, they're slowly being rotated out, I think. So you don't find them all over the place. And I think for, I really truly believe that the other elk were just traveling the landscape. Their water sources had dried up and they started just searching for water, put their nose to the wind and they could smell it. But when they got there, it was the first time they'd ever engaged it and they didn't know what the heck to do. I'm seeing the same thing with some of our water sources. Now, a stock tank, a metal steel stock tank that's, you know, like the latest pictures I was showing pretty much every deer on the landscape out here since birth has has engaged those. They, they know what they are. Now, whether there's water in it that they can reach or not, that's neither here nor there, but they know what a stock tank is, especially if they smell it and especially if, they, if they've engaged it before. The thing that I'm seeing there is, is with my rubber tanks. My rubber tanks, again, they've been out there for what now? Six months, I guess? at least at least 6 months in some of the places so the deer that are living there and and living day to day in and around these these water tanks that I placed out they've engaged them so again on the game camera with video you can watch these deer will come out they'll put their they'll they'll come downwind of it they'll just walk in smell sniff sniff just basically do your basic rudimentary check for danger but they'll just walk straight in. I mean, literally walk right up to the tank. Some of the little, you know, some of them will just step right into the tank and just start drinking. And I mean, they have no care in the world about engaging that water tank. This past uh, October, when I was hunting and I was videoing and showing, I mean, you saw the deer. They they'd walk. They flocked to the those rubber tanks and heck, climb in it and, and drink those things dry. However. What I'm seeing here these past several weeks and, and now a couple months of this winter, all of a sudden you'll get a group of deer, a doe and two fawns, or maybe two or three does and a couple fawns, where here they come, but my gosh, it does. Again, same thing with the elk. Maybe it takes them 10, 15 minutes 
downwind, checking, looking, eyeballing, sniffing, try, stretching, reaching, trying. I mean, they know there's water there. But they've never seen this black tub in their life. And I mean, it's like they're just on pins and needles. They have no idea what this thing is. They know they smell water. They're just, they're, they're just worried. They're just like, I don't know what this is. I, 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 uh, and they're just discovering it, it seems, for the first time. To where literally sometimes you, I'll get pictures where the deer are crouched, ready to spring for Their necks are stretched out as far for as just they're stretched as far as they can. And they're just sipping water out of the nearest edge that they can reach. And they don't want any, they just don't want anything to do with it. Now, over time, it, you know, I'm guessing because it's hard to, to suss out, you know, different does if they don't have any, you know, major markings that are, you know, telltale on their ears or face or flanks or whatever. But over time, it seems like some of it settles down, but there's this like periodic rotation where every now that here's another group, here's another doe and two fawns. Here's another couple of them. Here's another young buck that they're just, it seems based on body language and what they're doing in and around those tanks, it seems like they're encountering those for the very first time. So that's a long, long answer of, yes, you can have some animals that will say, okay, it's, it's the, the conditions here suck. Let's just go somewhere else. Yeah. But think about your own life. You've got your house, you've got your place of work. You normally get gas at such and such gas station. Well, if gas gets, starts getting scarce or whatever, you're probably still going to go to the gas station, but you just give yourself a little bit more time to fill up. Or better yet, your grocery store. Let's say there's supply chain issues and, and well, they don't have salad, you know, they don't have a lot of good variety of, of fresh vegetables this week. Or um, they didn't have my yogurt that I like. Or, or there wasn't as much milk and uh, juice on the in, in the in the shelves. Or, you know, maybe they just didn't have a, a large you know, maybe the eggs were lower. You know, you pick your produce, pick your pick your food, or whatever. That store was out of it. Well, initially, and quite honestly, over time, are you going to drive to a completely new city and go to a different grocery store to try to find food or or whatever you need? If it gets really, really, really bad and your grocery store just ends up not having anything, maybe. But if you think about how most of us are, we'll just be like, ah, oh, well, we'll just make do. Well, I, well, we'll just make do. Oh, they don't have the type of lettuce that I like, but they've got this. I'll make do. Or, well, I guess I can't have that. I can't have my, you know, 2% milk. I'll grab 1%. Milk. I'll, I'll make do. You settle. And you stay within your home range. A lot of deer are going to do the same thing. They're going to they're going to try to stay in there. Some of them, again, that's all they know. They don't know that there's stuff five miles to the northwest. They have no clue that that even exists over there. So you will have a lot of animals that will try to eke it out wherever they live. And sometimes, if the if the resources run out, <clears throat> they suffer for it dearly. Maybe even with their life. Other animals, just, and again, you have different personalities of animals as well. You'll have some animals that are like, screw a bunch of this. We're out. And they'll just take off and they'll just pioneer. Obviously, those animals, now, 
in bad years like this, you have those animals that pioneer and they just want to go off into new landscapes. That may allow them to survive a little bit better because, hey, they stumbled onto that river bottom that has water in it, that has better agriculture in it. Okay, well, great. Then I'm going to just stay here for a little while. Now, once the, the, the weather conditions turn around, they might all, they just might go right back to where they normally lived. Maybe this excursion is just one of those excursions that happens once every 10 years or whatever, only in those bad, bad, bad conditions. But maybe that personality of that animal just that is willing to go on those long excursions and pioneer and explore helps them survive, you know, them and their offspring survive. But by the flip side though, it also makes them more vulnerable to predation, vehicle interactions, uh, domestic dogs, human interactions, all you name it. So there's a trade-off there. So not all animals are that personality and that type that want to go and pioneer into different places. And not all animals have the experience of time that they know that there is resources in other places. Um, this is actually... It'd be an interesting conversation. This is uh, one of the hypotheses uh, back when I was going to college in the Upper Eagle River elk study when we were talking about elk behavior. There was an argument to be made about not shooting. If you're doing cow harvest, okay, you needed to reduce population of elk. So you can, you know, obviously you're going to have your bull hunts, but if you need to reduce the population, you want to have you need to remove cow elk off the landscape as well. And there was a, a and this is a one of the things that I talk about all the time as far as my doe hunts out here. There is a thought that says maybe don't take your biggest oldest females off the landscape, and especially when we're talking elk, because elk can live 15, 20 years, okay, in the wild. So that's on the outside, but you get, it's not uncommon to have a 15-year-old you know, cow elk, all right? Some point in that cow's life, in that 15 years, she may have encountered some really tough conditions. And if she was in the herd with other older age class animals, there's a likelihood that they knew that someone in that herd was that pioneering type, that personality. Someone in that herd might have actually figured out that, you know, we're going to stay in this drainage. We're going to go up on that mountain in the summer, and then we're going to come down these drainages and these ridges down to this this chunk of low-lying ground, and this is our yearly cycle. This is our yearly footprint of activity, all right? This is where we live. 99.9% of the time, this is where we live. We go to the top of the mountain in the summer. We go down to the bottom and out in the flats and out in the, on the, you know, low-lying elevations in the winter. But every so often, there's a massive snowstorm or there's a brutal drought. And maybe one of those cows in there is that pioneering sort, that, that adventurous individual that doesn't mind going out and striking out and exploring. And maybe she figured out that, well, if we go two or three or four or five more ridges, miles away, or 10, 15 miles, there's better winter range over here. It's even lower. 
It's got better shrubs. It's less snow. And so by preserving some of your older age class animals on the landscape, you're preserving that quote unquote old knowledge. This is especially true when we're talking about migratory animals. Elk especially, mule deer fit this way, pronghorn fit this way. Maybe not so much whitetails, but the principle is the same on a smaller scale. Migratory animals are moving across the landscape and they're going only going to where they technically need to. And if you have multiple years, the, the theory is, is you have multiple years back to back to back of, of easy conditions or normal conditions, they only need to utilize a certain footprint on the map. But every now and there, then, there's that one event, that drought event, or that snowstorm that makes it it's exceptional and it creates enough of a hardship that the animals there need to do something different. Either they're going to starve or they're going to suffer for it or they can do something different. Those older age class, especially the females that have been around the, the block a time or two, there's a, there's, a, there's a strong chance that they've gone through something like this before and someone in the herd has figured out where to go for a plan B. If they can go to that plan B, they have a higher rate of survival. So the thought is, if you're doing your your some of your cow harvests, cow harvests, don't take the biggest oldest cows off the landscape. Choose those middle aged cows or the younger aged cows because you're still taking mouths off the off the table, but you're preserving. You might be preserving some of that old knowledge on the landscape that will help that herd survive across time and these freak, you know, weather events that that could put the entire herd at risk. Same thing goes with whitetails. I think could be for whitetails. Because again, I'm I'm watching some of the similar behaviors now that we're having in this particular spot. I'm not talking about eastern Kansas, I'm not talking about southern Kansas. I'm not talking I don't give a rip fart about another part of Kansas. I'm talking about our spot here. I am witnessing what appears. It appears. Again, I don't have any I don't have the ability to throw. I think the, the the Kansas Parks and Wildlife would frown upon me setting up some clover traps and going and just purchasing a handful of uh, uh, radio collars and <laughs> trapping deer and throwing radio collars. That's just not how it works. I I, I enjoy working in the private sector as a bio, uh, as a as a wildlife biologist. Those activities mm, that that's off my that's off my table. I I, I can't do those so. I'm all I'm doing is utilizing observations and what I'm witnessing in front of cameras and it seems as though we've got two different type of deer engaging some of our water sources those that are very familiar with those water sources and other ones that have never in their life seen them and that which means they haven't seen them at least in the last 6 months where these water resources have been in place so they have not been there if they had lived in this area, I would have imagined that over the course of six months, they would have, st- given all the other deer are moving and utilizing and occupying these certain areas. Again, I'm not just randomly throwing these water tanks out there. They're strategically located in the the, the high activity centers uh, of these, these locations, so or deer activity centers. So 
the fact that a, that a, a, a set of animals uh, just and it just seems periodic. Here they come. They just kind of rotate through. Are not familiar with these resources. It suggests to me we've got wild movement across the landscape of deer trying to just figure out where they want to get uh, food and water. So, yeah. Sometimes, yes, you will have deer that will just get up and move and go. Other times, no, man. That's their home range. This is all they know. They don't know anything else, and they're just going to stay, and they're going to eke it out. That is that is where activities like mine and, and other people, if... if we can have a discussion about outfitters and diff- a different time, you know. Just the, I, I sit there and I watch the number of people that come out here and spend stupid amounts of money to buy bait to put out bait piles from October through December. And as soon as the as soon as they 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 either don't have any more clients or the season runs out and they can't kill the elk or elk, they can't kill the deer anymore. Whoop, bait piles gone. Water sort water tanks are they just completely flat abandon it. There's just there is no more. There's the only quote unquote activity. Yeah, I said man. Yeah, no. The only activity they were doing during the fall was creating a bite a bait site where they can kill something. There was nothing about providing a resource for the animals to make sure that they stayed healthy and they they survived uh, until the the next year. So anyway. If you have, if you hunt out here, now if you're hunting out here on public land, on just public walk-in habitat areas, walk-in access areas, state parks, you know, there's really not much you can do. I mean, you, you can't go put these things on, on uh, walk-in habitat areas, and most of the walk-in habitat areas are closed now anyway. So you really can't do that. But if you have access to private land, you have friends out here in, uh, that have private land, I'm telling you, don't just spend time out here during the hunting season. You need to spend, for a variety of reasons, you need to spend time out here in the off season so you know exactly what's going on. Um, I talked about the pheasant stuff last week, uh, just about the fact that so many people had no clue that all the CRP was cut and bailed this past year. Just flabbergasted. It's like, well, yeah, if you, you know, if you spend time out here in the off season continue to make those connections with those landowners foster those relationships with the landowners you know that but more importantly when if you are in a situation where you're in an area like mine because next year you know let well long-term forecasts for us are are suggesting that there's going to be no change at least until uh the middle of summer which sucks badly okay brutal but let's say it does turn around midsummer, and all of a sudden we get ourselves in a wet cycle. Well, that doesn't mean that southwest Kansas, southeast Kansas, northeast Kansas, somebody else doesn't end up, or Nebraska, or Oklahoma, or you know wherever you go hunting, all of a sudden doesn't end up in a brutal drought cycle of their own. Just a little regional one. If you know that, and you enjoy hunting there, and you value it, you might want to spend some time out here in the off-season, spend some time with the landowners, see what they're doing for their cattle management, if they have cattle, see what's see what opportunities you have. Everybody talks about food plots, but in, the, in this situation here, we're not talking food plots per se, we're talking about water. What can you do to put some better resources on the map 
so that you do have deer or turkeys or pheasants or whatever when you decide to come out and hunt in the fall. So, which which then, I guess, I didn't, I didn't plan this, but it kind of works out. That's a good segue um, from people have asked about the, the, my, my consulting, as far as what I do with hunt planning and, and consulting and that type of stuff. Uh, I, you, most of you know that I do work on habitat consulting as well. I, I need to, I, there's one landowner that I've been trying to touch base with and maybe I'll try to get out there early this, I, we've been back and forth. It doesn't matter. If you have land out here that you hunt on, Maybe that you don't even own. It doesn't matter. I mean, if you own it, it makes it easy. If you don't own it, it makes it a little bit more difficult. That's the whole point, the premise behind what I'm going to be spending more time talking about with Western Plains whitetails and then wildlife as well. But Western Plains whitetails, you see that hashtag that I put on a lot of my stuff, Western Plains whitetails. It's fine for people that own ground. To talk about food plots, talk about habitat, you know, timber stand improvement, rangeland improvements, this and that and the other thing. You know, pollinator, blah, blah, blah. Health, soil health and blah, blah, blah. Cycling, blah. Okay, that's fine if you own the ground. But in my neck of the woods, the vast majority of people that come out, that non-residents that come out to hunt, don't own their ground. They're either hunting on somebody because they got permission they knocked on the door a lot of times they're hunting on somebody ground that they knew for a while that they're friends of the family they're related to them somehow uh maybe they're leasing ground okay you're out here hunting but you don't own the land you have no management say over anything on the landscape whatsoever i'm lucky that i've got great landowners one of my landowners it's not about agriculture oops it's not about, hold on. That's a problem with talking with your hands. I'm flipping, I'm, I'm sitting here staring at a microphone, talking with my hands, and I just chuck my pen across the <laughs> whole room. Um, I'm I'm blessed, man. I, I, I can't, I, I, I'm fortunate. I'm, I've been blessed that I've got great landowners that I work with. One of them. It's not about crop production. It's not, and he doesn't run cattle. It is just all about wildlife. He's got 600 acres and it is all managed for wildlife, period. End of discussion. I've got another landowner that is a cattleman and a farmer and it's all about production, but he likes to hunt as well. And so we've taken a bunch of areas of of their property and... I've worked with him on food plots within crop ground areas and then worked on uh, increasing range condition on some of his native pastures that benefit not only his cattle, but also the wildlife as well. So yes, production is, you know, they, they want their cattle production, they want their crop production, but wildlife is in there as far as consideration as, as well. And then the other landowner, he sees the he doesn't have any value for hunting whatsoever uh, uh, whatsoever other than the fact that he knows well i like the idea of having people out here being able to hunt especially kids and i want to have things managed i want my property being taken care of and not being you know abused anymore and so and by the way there's a hell of a lot of demand for hunts so if we can get a little economic return from it that's awesome as well so but even he that 
no value for hunting himself has turned over many acres for me that he's pulled out of active ag production and allowed me to plant food plots. Now, at any moment, he could turn around and say, hey, Chris, uh, we're not going to do a food plot on there. I'm gonna, I'm gonna just going to go ahead and farm the whole thing. Okay, so I have to have a, a rotational strategy that meshes with that to where at any moment he can re- reclaim my food plots and turn it right back into his tillable ag, you know, not, well, no-till, but tillable ag acres uh, just like they were before um, I started planting it. So I have a, 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 a very good relationship with some great landowners that l- allow me the flexibility to do really good habitat work and, and food plot work on some of their productive productive acres. You may or may not have that ability, but if you do, or if you think you do, or if you want to explore whether or not you do, it's part of my business. Give me a call. Send me an email. Chris at rowhuntingresources.com. That's literally what I do. So if you have those situations where you're like, okay, well, I do hunt Northwest Kansas and I would like to have some assistance on figuring out what I can do. Let me know. We can sit and we can, we can chat if it's close enough. Maybe I come out and meet with you. We walk the ground and I can help you get an idea of, you know, where some of these resources might be best placed. We can get a game plan on how you can maintain them as an, as an absentee land or, you know, either, either an absentee landowner or an absentee, you know, quote unquote, habitat manager. You're, you're, you don't own the land. You're just the one that is focused on the deer, turkey, pheasant, upland bird habitat management. Um, Put together a strategy because I'm, I'm telling you, if weather conditions stay this, you know, cycles stay similar, and especially these next couple years where financially things are tough, man, there's going to be some things changing on the landscape. Just a little hint: if you are normally able to just knock on a door, or you have a good lease and, and you have a good relationship with some landowners, man, you guys better be fostering the ever living piss out of it, because it's going to start getting tough for landowners. Um. And they're going to need every ounce of assistance and support. And um, yeah, well, there you go. They're going to need every ounce of assistance and support that they can get. And those close relationships of those people that are out here throughout the year, making the connections, putting in the work, looking out for their operation and their family interests are, are going to, that, that cream is going to rise to the top. Okay. So don't just... That was a kind of a weird set. Yeah, I kind of, I'm sorry, I drifted off on that. But anyway, um, so many people were saying, oh, well, I, I, I'm not seeing that. I'm not seeing that. Or they can do that. Okay, man, every deer is going to be different. Every area is going to be a little different. No two are the same. And it's really being out on the ground, monitoring, watching, observing, and adjusting to the behavior is what is going to keep these populations, um, well, population, it, it, hopefully the populations, at least, you know, localized individuals um, doing better than everywhere else on the landscape. So anyway, I digress. But anyway, so that, to those people that were wondering why the deer just aren't moving off, that was a very long-winded answer on some deer 
management and some observations, but anyway. Um, but it did. It 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 went into the hunt plan, the the planning and so- consulting stuff because this in this one, both with whitetails, but in this case, this next question came up about the hunt planning and consulting in relation to what was going on, what I talked about with Colorado and and just the general crowding and units changing from uh, limited uh, from over the counter to limited draw, and it's just not not just uh, those people that were hunting in, say, Unit 80 to 81, we're talking about a bunch of different people that are just not happy with where they were, you know, the the hunter pressure, where they have been hunting in the past, and they want to go find a new area, they want to look at a new area, evaluate it, and they wanted to know if I'm still doing that hunt planning and hunt con, con, uh, consulting, because I had mentioned it on, I think it was the uh, Stickbow Chronicles there. The answer is yes, Okay. Yes, that's part of, again, that's another thing that I do. It's part of a business, row hunting resources, okay? Again, just send me an email, uh, chris at rowhuntingresources.com. It's pretty darn easy. Send me an email, we'll go through it. But the reason why I want to talk about it and address this is this: the number one thing. I am not going to, and we're talking about elk hunting here, okay? The the habitat consulting, that's a different thing, okay? they I do both. Whitetail habitat, you know, whitetail turkey, upland bird habitat consulting, yes. And quite honestly, elk habitat and elk management consulting, yes. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about hunt planning where you want to go hunt this fall for elk and you want some assistance on putting a game plan together or at least having another set of eyes, ears, and brain engaged in evaluating your your particular plan. And that's the key. It's your plan. I am not going to just point you in a direction. I'm not going to just say, oh, okay, yeah, you're looking for a place. Well, you know what? I you know, I heard about it. Why don't you go here and check this out? But no, 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 no. I have done this for a number of years now. I don't even know how many people I've talked with. But at least for Colorado, because I'm fairly familiar with a bunch of different areas in Colorado, I've talked with a lot of people in Colorado. So, which means I have a lot of knowledge about a lot of different areas in Colorado. At least I have a lot of knowledge about the possibility of a lot of areas in Colorado. Meaning I haven't walked these grounds. I haven't gone out there and killed elk in all these spots. I've gone through other people's work, talked with them, game plan with them, looked at maps with them, looked at stats with them. I've gone through, again, I'm, a, I'm another set of eyes, ears, and brain to help tease out the details and what I would do if I was going to this particular place. But any of those, you know, this particular place, it's their work. They, if you want my help, I will give it. But you have to come to me with a at least a certain amount of work. Now, if you're just saying, I want to elk hunt for the very first time, okay, obviously that's going to be a different discussion, which we're going to, I'm going to ask you a whole bunch of questions. And together we are going to narrow down several possibilities for you to go out and put boots on the ground in the off season, take a look at these different areas, see what you think, and then you come back and then we'll have, then we'll fine tune from there. 
But if you've already hunted, or if you've all you already know of an area, or you've already done, you know, started your your hunt planning, that's that is where I come in. Okay, I am not going to suggest places for you to look. I'm not going to suggest places for you to go, because could you imagine if you and I had a conversation three years ago, and you did the work. I helped you fine-tune it. You went there and hunted. You got into elk. You didn't see a lot of people. You were like, man, this is awesome. I finally found a place. And then all of a sudden, this year or whatever, two trucks roll in, four guys roll out. You're like, oh, uh, hey, how'd you find out about this place? Oh, you know, we talked to Chris Rowe, and uh, he, he said we should come over here. How popular would I be with you at that moment? Fair enough? So, don't, I'm not trying to be an ass here. Yes, if you have done some work, you've, 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 you, maybe you have an, an area currently, or maybe you've been looking at maps, maybe you've been looking at satellite imagery. Maybe you've been looking at Onyx or whatever, and you're like, all right, I've been curious about here. I'm interested in this. This looks good here. This looks good here. I'm thinking about this. What do you think? Okay, you're coming to me with your ideas and your game plan, and I'm going to help you pick it apart. Maybe by the time we're done, you're like, hmm, man, I don't even know if this is a good spot or not. I don't know if I want to go there. I don't know. Okay, maybe you find a plan B. Or maybe you're like, man, this this might actually work. I'm I'm excited about this. All right, then get some boots on the ground and go go check it out. All right, because tag, you know, draw, you know, state license draws are are coming due. Several people are, have gotten interested this year a lot earlier than normal. A lot of times I'm doing this in the summer, um, but again, unit eighty and eighty one went limited draw. Uh, people last year, there was more people in certain areas than they'd ever seen. And they're like, I'm done with it. I just, I've got to get out of here. Trust me, been there, done that. I know what you're dealing with. Um, for a variety of reasons, there's a bunch of people that have, have gotten a hold of me and wanted me to, to give them a hand now before they decide whether they're going to just go back to OTC or whether they're going to start cashing in some points and, and try to just go the limited license and, and go that route. I just wanted to address that. By all means, send me an email. Okay? But, and, and again, it's part of my business, so I do charge for it. I'm not going to sit there on the phone or on the computer with you for four hours for free, you know, going through. I, I, I will answer questions on, you know, the socials as, you know, the best I can. But if you want to sp- spend some time picking apart satellite imagery you want to spend some time picking apart maps and and forest service plans and 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 travel management plans and all that type of stuff okay it's part of my business all right you got to do the work you got to you got to have you have an idea of what you want from me and then i'm going to help guide you from there okay um all right enough of that one uh another question came in and this is another one this was this has come up a couple times, and this is why I want to a- answer it here. So recently, a gentleman contacted me. He he's got some land in Oklahoma, and he's interested in doing some. It sounded like he's interested in doing some food plots in the in the future. This is for deer, whitetails, by the way. Um, doing some 
uh, food plots in the future. But he was saying, for, for right now, what can I do to supplementally feed these animals and just get them on the, the property and, and get them, you know, using the property and, and what can I do? All right. This comes up all the time and it doesn't matter how many times I've heard it answered. The question continues to come up. So apparently it needs to continually be answered. The big one is, is number one. Okay. If you want to supplementally feed deer, you have to identify now, number one, is it legal in your state? Okay. Bottom line, are you allowed to feed deer or not? Colorado? No, you're not allowed to feed deer and elk. All right. You're allowed to feed birds like bird feed. Okay. So that's where turkeys get in this gray area because you can go out and put out a bird feeder and scatter, you know, 50 pounds of, of sunflower seeds, you know, that might have cracked corn in it. And you're like, well, I'm feeding birds. And you got an entire flock of turkeys coming in there and feeding. Well, they're birds. You're feeding the birds. So, but no, you cannot feed deer or elk in Colorado. Other states you can't. In Kansas, we can put out bait or f- supplemental feed for deer uh, year-round. There's no, much to my chagrin in some ways, uh, there's no control, uh, there's no uh, law against that. Um, no regular, no, there's no, there's nothing regulating it at all. Um, now, in Oklahoma, I don't know. I did a little brief look and it, I, it says that you cannot bait or place feed out or food out on state managed ground, but it seemed like there was a, a wiffle waffly, you know, uh, on private property. So I don't know. I, I didn't deep dive on it because that's up to you to figure out whether or not in Oklahoma on private property can you feed deer. All right. The two biggest things about when people say I want to I want to put fo- I want to put food out for deer. Number one. Are we talking about you want to supplementally feed the deer or are you wanting to put supplemental snacks on the landscape for deer? And that and that's like legit question. Because if we're talking about you want to feed the deer, you're you're implying that you want to provide food that is going to provide make up the basis of the what the the majority of the forage and the the food intake, the nutritional intake of their, uh, you know, daily intake. If that's the case, well, real quick, if you want to talk about, if you want to learn more about supplementally feeding deer, especially if you're talking about, I want to provide the bulk of the nutritional uh, daily intake, you need to go to another podcast. Go to the Deer University podcast. It's the uh, Mississippi State University uh, Deer Lab. I think it's uh, Professors Bronson and, and Strickler, I believe, are still doing it. I haven't listened to it in a while, but they had that that podcast is all about deer management, deer biology. It's a pretty good podcast. They are they're professors at uh, Mississippi State University and researchers. And obviously, they've got a network of of professionals that they work with. If you scroll back in the early days of the podcast, you will come across a podcast that is about supplementally feeding deer. And they were talking, the guest on that podcast was a biologist and researcher down in Texas and that did extensive uh, feeding of deer. And what his statement was, if you're talking about supplementally feeding deer and providing for the nutritional uh, intake of those animals, 
you need to be talking about purchasing food by the semi-load. We're, we're talking about a tractor-trailer trailer load of feed. If you're just talking about buying 50-pound bags at the local feed store every now and then, you're not supplementally feeding those deer. You're providing snacks for those deer. It's not that there's anything wrong with either one of them, but just understand, let's just say, and it depends, regionally it's different, seasonally it's different, lactation versus blah, 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 all things aside, on average, you can pretty much say a whitetail is going to be eating three to five pounds of dry matter, dry food, three to five pounds of dry matter food per day. What I mean by dry matter is if they're eating lush alfalfa or winter wheat or something like that, there's a lot of water in it. I'm not talking about weight, the weight of that water in that vegetation. If you dry it out and then weigh it, you're talking generally three to five pounds somewhere in there per day. Seasonally, it's going to change. Lactating does are going to be different. So just let's just say, let's just arbitrarily say five pounds a day, okay, per deer. All right. If you've got a hundred deer on your property or you want to feed a hundred deer that's 500 pounds of feed per day okay again if we're talking about if you're in marginal habitat where you just don't have a lot let's just say you're in okay habitat and there's native vegetation out there that they can browse on as well and so you're going to going to provide like 80 percent of their their nutrition so may, let's just say that they're they're only eating three pounds of your food per day and they're getting the other two pounds somewhere else that's still 300 pounds for those hundred deer you're talking 300 pounds of of feed per day you can see how fast that adds up okay and the logistics that just go it, it becomes crazy all right that's why most of the time when people are talking about, you know, I want to feed deer, I want to supplementally feed deer, you're talking about putting snacks on the landscape. Okay, You're wanting to put up a feeder that's going to scatter, you know, and you're probably buying feed, you know, whatever your feed, whatever you're, whatever you're putting out there, you're, you're buying it in 50-pound bags. Okay, You're putting snacks on the landscape, number one. Number two, the next question you have to ask yourself is, are the deer in your area acclimated to corn is there corn crops agriculture on the landscape in your area or do you know for a fact definitively without question that maybe your neighbors maybe your previous owners maybe everyone around you provides corn in some shape way shape or form in their supplementally provided snacks on the landscape. The reason why I'm asking that is people will oftentimes gravitate toward corn. They're going to buy, I want to buy corn and put corn out there because the deer like, okay, deer love shelled corn, hard kernel shelled corn, whole corn. Absolutely. They love it. They will absolutely love it and they will absolutely eat it. The issue is, and this, this always comes up and this is the question that always needs to be answered. Or, or the, the question, the controversy that always needs to be addressed is you will have people that say, do not feed deer corn because you'll kill them. Deer can't digest the corn and, and you'll kill them. And then other people, especially in Kansas, Iowa, Indiana, oh, I, I, 
Midwest, anywhere through the Corn Belt, are like, what the hell are you talking about? Deer eat corn all the time. What do you mean they're gonna, you're not going to kill deer by feeding corn? Okay. The issue is, is the ruminant bacteria. So, in a, all ruminants, deer, elk, bison, blah, 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 cattle. They have multiple chambers in their stomach. Four-chambered stomach, okay? In that stomach is a soup of bacteria. That soup of bacteria, there's just a myriad of different types of bacteria in that soup. And that bacteria grows and becomes very adapt adapted to whatever specific food that deer is going to eat regionally. And so if a deer is nowhere near row crop agriculture and it's only in big timber and acorns and it's eating on soft mast and hard mass and woody browse and native vegetation, but it's never seen a kernel of corn in its life, there will not be bacteria in that soup, that, that bacterial soup in that deer's rumen that knows how to, that's adapted to and knows how to break down corn. So even though the deer has a, has a stomach full of bacteria that helps break down its native food, it doesn't have the right bacteria in the stomach to break down corn. And that, that deer can literally fill its gut with corn and die with a full stomach because it becomes impacted. It, just be, it, it, it will absolutely throw the digestion of that deer into a, it. It will kill the deer. If they are not adapted to eating corn. However, in areas where corn is part of the natural landscape, even seasonally, there is going to be a component of that bacterial soup in that rumen for those animals that is adapted to and has the ability to break down corn. And so maybe in the summer it's eating alfalfa and, and maybe early fall it's eating, you know... It, well, yeah, there you go. It's eating alfalfa and native weeds and, and maybe it's chewing on soybeans and all that. But as, but the bacteria is in there that knows how to eat corn as it start, as the corn starts to ripen, it starts to nibble on kernels of corn as it starts, you know, through the summer and into the fall. And then sure, you know, certainly into the winter, the bacteria that knows how to handle corn will start to increase as the intake of corn starts to increase. And the animal can, the, the soup of bacteria will change seasonally and will be able to break down that corn and digest it. So in areas where deer are adapted or used to eating corn, yes, you can feed corn. In areas that they are not, no, do not feed corn. If you're going to try to feed corn, you're going to have to do it extremely, extremely carefully over a, an extended period of time. Okay. In my opinion, for just providing snacks, it's not worth it. All right. The best bet, if you're, if you are in an area, and by the way, I'm not condoning or endorsing supplementally feeding. It, that's, that's on you to make that determination. All right. Where obviously it needs to be legal. Number one. Number two, you got to evaluate what the heck did you are you doing it for? All right. 
In this case, this person was just curious, what can I put on the landscape to help the deer and keep the deer there and, and start to get them to use the property more, blah, 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 blah. I don't know if there's any corn on the landscape out there or if the deer have ever encountered corn on the landscape wherever his property is. My recommendation is if when in doubt, if you feel you must or you feel that it's important to put supplemental feed out there, two things. One, go with a pelletized deer feed, a feed that's actually formulated for deer. Especially if you're going to do it in the winter. That's oftentimes, most of the time, when people are wanting to do supplementally feeding for deer. You know, anybody that's in Colorado that's gone through some just brutal winters knows that every now and then the, the agency will, will, will feed deer and elk on the landscape. Now, elk, they may be putting out alfalfa pellets and other pellets on the, on the landscape, but for mule deer... It's always stated, do not put corn, do not put corn. Let us, let the state handle it. Why? Because the state veterinary office puts together a, a basically a feed bill and they will have a deer food made for mule deer in the winter. Because, and it, same thing with whitetails, seasonally because the food changes and in the fall winter and well the fall and winter as everything goes dormant and everything's dead everything's dried up most of the food is going to have a hell of a lot more lignin fiber uh woody component I mean, just real hard roughage okay hard to digest material yes there are nutrients trapped inside there but it takes a lot of energy, a lot of bacterial engagement, specific bacterial engagement, to break that hard material down. It's not alfalfa and soybeans and winter wheat that's just, you know, highly digestible, highly palatable, you know, highly nutritious. No, these things in the wintertime are woody, stemmy, hard to break down. The soup of bacteria in their stomach is going to change as the seasons change. And so that animal is going to have a gut bacteria uh, soup tailor-made to whatever it's been eating for how many ever weeks or months. If you go in and just throw in a new food on uh, on the table for them, again, that soup of bacteria may not be able to handle it. A pelletized deer food is going to, most of the time, is going to be formulated so that, especially if you're doing it in the winter, is going to be formulated to be better suited for that rumen bacteria to where you're not going to... Road to hell is paved with good intentions. Isn't that what they say? Well, my good intention was is I wanted to put food out for the deer. And then you end up killing them because you you impacted their 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 gut biome and they couldn't handle it. Okay. Pelletized deer feed is the way to go. If you're when in doubt. Now, obviously if you're in corn country and the deer are adapted to corn and they can handle corn just fine. Corn is a, is a cheap, that's why most people want to go to corn. It's cheap. Generally speaking, it's going to be a lot cheaper than pelletized deer feed. That's for sure. And you're going to be able to find corn in more places than you're probably going to find pelletized deer feed. 
However, if you're in an area and a region that generally does, you know, where the average person, average landowner out there or leaseholder is out there feeding deer, you probably can find pelletized deer feed a little bit easier. But corn is just cheap and corn is effective because deer love just the taste, the smell, the, the, the energy it gives them. It's a full of carbohydrates. There's a little bit of protein in it, but it's full of car- carbohydrates. So in the winter, especially in cold areas, they will absolutely flock to it. All right, and just pound the piss out of it. But like, for instance, here, I do put out supplemental feed depending on the season, depending on the field. Now, and I will put out corn um, because our animals are highly adapted to it. And quite honestly, when I put out feed, this is the second part of this. I do not, I personally do not like static feeders. All right. Now I do have a, a landowner that uses them. That's his prerogative. It's his land. He can do whatever he wants within the, I mean, it's legal in the state. So, Hey, okay. That's what he wants to do. If I'm going to use a static feeder, I'm going to use a feeder like the capsule feeder or the standing spin feeders. I'm going to have it to where it broadcasts that feed out over a, a large area. I do not like having, I hate, so I don't like static feeders. I absolutely despise bait piles. I hate bait piles. Okay. And I'll talk about that here in a second, but I get, I, I want that feed scattered. Okay. Most of the time when I'm doing it, I'm taking my Swisher commercial pro spreader, opening the, the hatch on that baby and, and adjusting the, the little agitator in the bottom. I'll pull it behind the ATV or the Ranger and I'll scatter, you know, I'll take 300, 500, 600 pounds of feed of corn, and I'll spread it across an acre or two. I want it scattered. I want to mimic how that corn would fall out of a combine and be scattered across standing, you know, like just corn stubble or whatever. All right. So I, I want it scattered because, and for us, we're in a CWD area. So we've got disease issues that we already need, we, we know we need to deal with. But more importantly than that, Deer like to be spread out. They they like they don't they don't like to be stacked in on top of one another. You could take a, a static you know bunk feeder where you know just just a trough. You could put five hundred pounds of corn in that trough, or you could take five hundred pounds of corn or pelletized feed or whatever and scatter it across say a half acre. I'll bet you have uh, uh, dollars to donuts. You'll have more deer utilizing that area if it's been scattered across the landscape than you will have using that bunk feeder. You you might end up feeding all those deer at some point at the bunk feeder or in the in the trough, but they're going to be a lot more staged at it, and they're they're not going to all just want to come you know kind of compact in there. They can spread out across the landscape if that feed is spread out more. Also, feeders, concentrate activity. Obviously, increases the chance for, for disease transmission, but more importantly, it also creates a situation where it makes them a little bit more vulnerable to predation because the predators figure that stuff out as well. They know darn well where all the animals are going to to get feed. All right? Um, and then the other flip side is, is the non-target species. If you're in a place that has hogs... Jeez, oh Pete, good luck. You're, guess who's going to be coming to dinner? Out here with us, it's raccoons. And and let's, let me just segue right into why I hate bait piles. Bait piles, just a big pile of corn? No. You've got stuff called aflatoxin. You've got molds. you got you got 
Aflatoxin comes from a fungus. It, it's, it, 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 most corn in most areas will have some environmental aflatoxin associated with it. It's part, it's, it stems from a fungus. Okay. For cattle. Yeah. Jesus is longer discussion. So real quick, aflatoxin is bad for ruminants. Okay. It's bad. It's, it's really bad for turkeys. It'll, it'll, it, it's, it's deadly to turkeys. That's the other reason why I hate, uh, bait piles, but aflatoxin is usually naturally occurring in the environment and with shelled kernel corn coming out of a combine, different fields and different seasonal fluctuations and, and, you know, whether it's irrigated, non-irrigated, a wet year, dry year, whatever, you're going to have different levels of aflatoxin come in. Some fields don't have squat. Others are really high on it. When it goes to a grain elevator, by law, most grain elevators are putting up corn because they're using it for cattle. People are using it for cattle feed, feedlots, etc. When it's being used for feed, there is a threshold of what is acceptable, uh, what, what's an acceptable level of aflatoxin uh, that you can feed a cow. And I, off the top of my head, I, I'm blank and I don't remember what it, what, what it was right now. Let's say it's 100 parts per million. I don't know if that's the case. Just arbitrary. Let's say it's 100 parts per million. It, in order to feed cattle corn, when they test the aflatoxin levels, that aflatoxin has to be less than 100 parts per million in, you know, in the feed. Well, they're looking at cattle. They're not paying attention to what deer thresholds are. And deer thresholds are much less than what cattle are in most cases. And as far as I'm aware of. And with turkeys, oh hell. Not only does aflatoxin affect reproductive rates of adults and can actually harm adults just outright, poults that eat it, it can out flat out, it'll just flat outright kill turkey poults. So most corn. Now, if you're buying 50 pound bags of corn from a feed store, that might have less aflatoxin in it. Okay. That might actually be, especially if it's going to be purposely marketed for deer, that actually might be a little bit cleaner. There was a study. uh, This was last year at the Southeast Deer Study Group. Uh, A a master's student was looking at that uh, down South and some of the bags they found there was aflatoxin in it. Others that they found the aflatoxin load was, was low enough to where it was fine for deer. That doesn't mean it's fine for turkeys, but it was at least, it was at least acceptable uh, within the realm of feeding to deer. Now that's if that feed stays dry. Again, it's a, it's a byproduct of that fungus. So if that fungus is in there and you put that feed on the ground in an area that gets damp and then it gets warm, just because you bought a bag of feed uh, of corn that say was only 10 parts per million aflatoxin as it was tested, as it went into that bag, as it was dry, doesn't mean that if you take 10 bags of that 50 pound bags and dump it out on the ground, that in a week of, you know, marginally warm and damp weather, the aflatoxin level hasn't spiked in that bait pile. All right. So bait piles 
are bad. There's there's way too many potentials for disease risk. There are uh, illness risk. There's the potential for de- disease issues. Predation, same thing. But most of the time, when you're throwing food on the ground like that, in a big pile like that, the number of raccoons that you, st- you stack in, the skunks, the possums, the, the, the hogs, and everything else, you're just feeding everything else in addition to the deer. They're just, in my opinion, there just is no reason for a bait pile. And it drives me absolutely batshit crazy out here. The, the, uh, the number of outfitters that are around me that will throw up a gargantuan bait pile, especially in the spring, for tur- like literally four turkeys. Awesome. Great job, guys. So you're supplementally feeding the freaking raccoons. We've got raccoons in plague proportions now. You're artificially increasing the number of raccoons that are coming to this area. And you're feeding turkeys, most likely, because you're getting your, your, your corn from the grain elevator, you're feeding turkeys freaking corn that's laced with aflatoxin. You're detrimentally impacting the adults and you're, you're sorely probably impacting the reproductive success of those adults as well. So you wonder why our turkey populations aren't doing as good as they, they, they once were before you freaking showed up and started running. Anyway. Yeah. I don't like bait piles, corn piles. Um, because again, you can, there's no reason why you can't buy, get corn if you want to feed your deer and go out and scatter it across a broad area. The deer are going to want to utilize it any better anyway. Anyway, so supplementary feeding, it's got to be legal, number one. Number two, um, you got to figure out what you, what, what's your purpose. Are you trying to f- provide the nutritional, the bulk of the nutritional uh, load for those animals, or are you just talking about providing snacks? If you're providing snacks, evaluate what you're going to feed carefully. I would recommend deer pelletized feed if you are in an area that has no corn around it. Um, and then if you're going to provide that feed, do it in a way that scatters that feed across a broader area so that way you're reducing all those potential negative effects. All right, what else next? Oh, uh, this is another one that came up. State trust lands. There's still people that are upset that they started looking at and they were scouting. They're like, oh man, I can, there's state trust land. I want to go check that out. And then they find out, no, they can't hunt it. And yeah, no. Okay. So Colorado is the big one where this keep, this question always comes up. And so I'm going to answer it again. No, in Colorado, if you see state trust land, it does not necessarily mean it's open for the, open to the public to go hunt. State trust lands are owned slash managed. They're owned by the state. They're managed by the state land board. Those lands are specifically managed and they're owned and managed to make money for the state state programs in one way, shape, or form. Oftentimes, state trust lands, the money generated is going to some sort of school uh, endowment, school funding, Okay. State trust lands are considered private. They are managed. They're owned by the state, but they're managed under the principle 
that they are treated as though they are private land. So most state trust lands are leased out to cattle producers, farmers, all right? They're leased, and that lease gives the leaseholder, that private landowner, so a landowner owns a bunch of ground next door to this chunk of ground that's state land board. State land board leases that ground to that cattle producer. That cattle producer runs his cattle on that state, and the entire area is considered private land. If you want to access that state trust land, you have to get permission from the landowner or the less the leaseholder that has the lease for that ground. Okay, does that make sense? It is it is not public ground per se. And I say per se because some state trust lands have adequate wildlife habitat on it such that the Colorado Parks and Wildlife lease the recreational rights from the state land board and then the agency, because they are the leaseholder, says we will allow people to come onto our lease of this piece of state trust land and hunt. But you'll oftentimes see state trust land has more strict regulations than maybe the National Forest does. There are many state trust lands that are open for hunting, but you cannot camp on it. You can't stay overnight on it. Maybe you can't even park in places on it, okay? Most of the time, if a piece of ground... No, not most of the time. Well, maybe most. I don't know. I, I don't know all the cases. Most of the time, if a piece of state trust land is open for public hunting, it is because the Colorado Parks and Wildlife has leased it. If they have leased it and it is open for hunting, you will find that listing in the big game regs. Or you can look at, there's actually a a publication that actually lists public land in Colorado and those state trust lands will be listed in there. Not all state trust lands will be listed in there because not all state trust lands are leased by the Colorado Parks and Wildlife. The vast majority of state trust lands are actually leased by private ag or cattle producers and those state trust lands are managed as private property. Okay? Those pieces of land are not there and held in an open public trust where everybody can just go out and recreate on it. It is held for this a very specific financial purpose, whatever the state land board has deemed for those that property. Okay? So, no. Not all state trust land is is available. Yeah, tell me about it. There's some nice chunks of real estate out there, and and it looks like you could have some really good uh, hunting on some of that stuff, especially the stuff that's landlocked into places. But oh well, alas, it's not a, it's it's not out there for you. <laughs> Go find out who, and you should be able to contact the state land board and find out who leases that ground, and then you can contact the landowners and find out whether or not they would allow you to to go hunt that chunk of ground. Good luck. <clears throat> All right. Uh, one more. Uh, let's see. What, one? Yeah, a couple more, actually. I know we're, we're pushing two hours. That's all right. Um, 
the question came up about my thoughts about banning game cameras. A couple of you had asked about what I thought about banning game cameras in Utah. Um, well, I had a conversation, again, with Jay Scott of uh, Jay Scott Outdoors regarding the Arizona ban. Uh, not, yeah, that's probably last year now. Well, obviously, it was last year. Um, so you can go back and listen to that one to hear my a lot of my take on that. The one thing about the Utah ban that I thought was interesting was that they actually talked about cellular cameras, like specifically, and more importantly, was the they outlawed the purchasing of images, which I thought was interesting because the when we were when Jay and I were talking about Arizona and the Arizona ban was going in, people kept bringing up, well, you know someone could say, I'm just watching wildlife. I'm not elk hunting. I'm going to put my game camera on this, or I'm going to have a hundred game cameras. I'm going to put it on every water hole in the unit and uh, I'm not hunting, but, oh, I'll put them up on a website and you can log in and, and, and you can, you know, you can see the images that uh, you can pay me and you can see the images that come in from those game cameras. So you're getting the benefit of a get your again most most of these bands are you cannot take you cannot use game cameras to aid in the take or the direct take of aid in the take of of wildlife okay well if it's not my game camera and someone over there is just doing it from a wildlife watchable wildlife standpoint well I'm not running the game camera and I'm not using the game camera to eight, but I but I can view his pictures. Okay, so there was that kind of gray area. Well, Utah knocked that right out. They just said, nope, you can't run. And now Utah did a season. All right, so I don't. I, and I I was looking at this the other day, and it's getting late. Um, anyway, you can't use them in the fall. I think what is it? It, it basically late so it was it ends in July or something like that. So basically, you cannot use them. You can't be running a game camera in the fall and winter. All right anytime around the hunting season. And more importantly, they've specifically said you cannot hunt, you cannot purchase those images and use them as well. So they they did a good job on how they wrote it. And then the other one was the the transmit. All right. So this was this one's already always a man, this one just gets me. So you'll hear people talk about, you know, real time. Oh, you know, we don't like those real time cameras and, you know, and, and those cellular cameras. It's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You have cellular, you have, you have game cameras. You have cellular cameras. And then you have real time cameras. A cellular camera is not a, re, in my opinion, it's not a real time camera. A real time camera is what it's, it's wired into a router or a Wi-Fi or something, and it streams images as that animal's standing there. You can see in a good example of this on a lot of raptor nests in the spring, uh, well, starting now and through right in, into early summer. You'll have universities, you'll have municipalities, you'll have different places. Uh, they'll put a real-time camera over top of an eagle nest or an owl nest or something like that. And it's streamed onto a website, a news station's website, a university's website or whatever. 
and you can log into that. You can go to that website and click on that camera and you can literally watch in like within a second or two delay. You can literally watch what's happening in that nest at any given at any given moment. It's live stream. It's real time live stream. Okay. There was talk back in the day in Texas that, and, and I used to actually watch one. There was a, a Texas ranch that had these cameras installed. And quite honestly, this particular place, you logged in, you actually could control, you, you'd get your turn for like three minutes. You could control the camera. You could turn the camera wherever you wanted to turn it. You could look to, you know, look over here to this feeder, or you could look over here to this, this box blind, or you could look, you, you could move the camera around and actually watch what was happening on the landscape on this particular ranch, morning and night. That was a real-time or live stream camera. Now, the reason why that got really controversial, especially in Texas, because there was people talking about, well, can we set up a system by which we can also have people remotely shoot an animal that's, you know, that's out there on the, you know, and basically someone could could hunt a, a big high fence Texas deer from their living room in Connecticut. All right. So obviously that became exceedingly controversial and it got really a lot of people fired up about these real-time cameras. Well, when cellular cameras started coming out, people were like, oh, it's a real-time camera. Well, hold on. No, it's not. It's still a, it's still a game camera. It still has a delay. It still has a trigger. That trigger goes off. The camera captures the image. Then that cell, that if it's a cell camera, then that cell can, that cell camera, the cellular portion of the camera connects to the. You know how it works. I sound like that, that. Holy hell! I was trying to shorten things up, but I almost sounded like Biden. <laughs> you you know you know the thing you you know you know the thing. Um, it transmits that image cellularly, sends it to your phone. Depending on, now even the best, even the best cam. So I run covert scouting cameras because they, in our area, are some of the best that I've ever used. And for me, I can have an image in my hand. So something walks in front of my, especially my security, the ones I put in in place for security, and especially when I'm I'm patrolling and, and watching for trespassers and poachers. Someone walks in front of that camera and 30 seconds later, I've got an image on my phone. Okay, so it's fast, but that's in optimal conditions, number one. Number two, I chose a camera that's set up that way. Number three, I still have to get there, okay? So now some of my properties, I'm, I'm minutes away, like just a couple minutes. Others, maybe it's going to take me 15 minutes to get there, all right? So yeah, it's quick, but it's definitely not live action. And that's that particular style of camera because there are other cellular cameras that only send uh, pictures in batches. So it'll take pictures over this course of an hour or two hours or six hours or 12 hours or whatever. And then it'll send the entire batch to your website or whatever. Well, hell, that's a however delay you set or however delay that, that system is, that's not live action. All right, so... I really have a pet peeve when people call cellular cameras live action cameras because they're not live action. And quite honestly, in many areas, if you're remote and you have poor 
reception, sometimes the image doesn't even go through anyway. And if it does, it comes through the next day. And even even if it did come in in that 30 seconds, unless you're camped right next to that water hole, hell, in Unit 9, I know for a fact in some of these places, it's going to take me almost an hour to get there. So who cares? I mean, it doesn't matter that the elk tripped the trigger at, you know, three o'clock in the afternoon, if it's going to take me an hour to, to mobilize and get there. But regardless, that's just, that's just my opinion. Now, and quite honestly, if you really want to get my opinion, I, I don't, I, I would, I would have loved to have seen somebody do a test and say, no, 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 you can run game cameras, but you're only allowed to use cellular cameras. I would love to see that regulation. And I think it can be justified. Because a cellular camera, yes, some are focused on the fact that, oh, it's going to give an unfair advantage because you know that animal's at that water hole or that that wallow or that crossing or whatever right then and there. Okay, sure. But by the flip side, though, is on these water holes where you have 10, because most of the time the issue is, is because the number of people that are, it becomes combat game camera, you know, management around some of these key locations. You you have five, 10, 15 or more cameras on a particular water hole. Okay. So, or a water, you know, a, a wildlife water, maybe it's a wallow in the woods or whatever, but it doesn't matter. Most of the time it's, it's a, it's a, a known location where animals are going to congregate or come to. And so you'll have 10 different outfitters or 10 different people, 10 different game cameras, 15, 20 different game cameras on a particular water hole. Let's think about this a minute. Most of the time when those people are doing that activity, they are seeking out the cream of the crop. They're looking for a particular singular bull elk or a singular trophy mule deer. Or maybe there's more than one utilizing this resource, but they're looking excuse me, for like this one particular animal. There might be 20 different bulls using this water hole, but they're only interested in one that might be rotating through there every, you know, three days, five days, whatever. They're they're looking, again, I talked about this in a previous podcast as well. Back when I was, uh, the one of the, uh, one of the earlier Unit 9 clients that I had, so, I guide, you know, for those that don't know this, I do have a guide's license down in Arizona. I really love Unit 9, Arizona, and I have been in 7 West as well. I love the the Ponderosa Pines. Anywhere there, there's good Ponderosa Pines, I, I just love it. So, but I've spent most of my time in, in Unit 9. And so I had a client in Unit 9, and he came to me and said, I want a 380 bull or better, okay? Well, at that year, there was, and this was back when there was a lot of game camera use, there was two different outfitters that were running cameras and they pooled their resources together and compared their notes. And that particular year, 380 and again, we're talking unit nine, Arizona premier, one of the best units, you know, it's known for trophy bulls, 380 or bigger represented 0.8 percent of the population of bulls that they had inventory 0.8 and there was thousands of bulls that they had inventory they, they'd been running game cameras since summer and been following everybody pretty much 
I'm not going to say they had a game camera on every water source, but geez, oh Pete, I'll bet you they had a game camera on probably, between the two of them, probably 80%. 380 bulls or better represented 0.8% of the population. Well, guess what most of the trophy hunters out there and trophy outfitters were going after? They were going after that 0.8, okay? So on some of these, and I'm thinking specifically in my head in a certain region, there was a gigantic bull that generally used a certain area, and there was three different water holes on that particular, in, in that particular home range that that bull was using. And so they were focused on that eight ways from Sunday. But meanwhile, there's a whole bunch of other bulls that are using it. And there's 10, 15 game cameras on every single one of those water holes because all the outfitters are looking for it. So every single day, somebody, of uh, uh, at least one, two, three, five, ten, I don't know, many, multiple people that are running those game cameras are going into and checking those game cameras every day. In, out, in, out, in, out, in, out, in, out, hoping that when they pull the card, bam, there he is. There's that giant. And, and we, and when I pulled the card, I was one of the first ones to discover it because then I could put my hunter in there and we could saturate that area and we get a chance to kill this bull, okay? So you have all that disturbance going on, all that human scent, all the vehicle traffic. Let's discount the fact that other people are trying to hunt there and you've got all this disturbance and so you get this conflict and animosity going between hunters and people checking game cameras. But you have so much activity during at that time, and, and there's some of those guys were absolutely purposefully going in during prime time hours because they knew they could bump animals off the water if their client wasn't sitting there. But the, all the disturbance that's going on ends up making a lot of the activity coming into those water holes nocturnal. So you're you're decreasing the amount of wildlife use. Uh, you're you're affecting. You're negatively affecting the the critters wanting to use the the wild the the wildlife water anyway. You're almost assured to be predisposing the bulk of movement in and around that waterhole to be after dark or after legal shooting hours. Yes, are there going to be animals that come in during the day? Yeah, of, of course there are. But when you have people coming in random all the time, just in out in out in out in out. That disturbance is excessive. You have a cellular camera. You don't have to go back. You don't have to check that camera because the camera's sending you pictures. So go ahead, 10 outfitters. Put 10 freaking cameras on there. Okay? Now you never have to go back in and check. You're after that point one, that 0.8% of the, uh, you're looking for that one 400-inch bull. But maybe my client or some DIY hunter, he's happy with a 340, a 350, a 360. Well, if you're not going in and out, in and out, in and out to check those cameras because it's, it's a cellular camera and it's sending it to your phone, if that giant 400-inch bull never shows up at that water hole, well, then your clients never have to worry about going there. But everybody else gets to go there. Number one. Number two, they know that they don't have to get, they're not going to get disturbed by someone coming in trying to check a, a game camera. And number three, because the disturbance level on the landscape is so much reduced, you're more likely to have more daylight activity at those water sources. 
I think you could actually make an argument that by running cellular cameras, you could not only de- you well because because here's the flip side: <coughs> if you're running a cellular camera and that 400 inch bull shows up, it's going to be a freaking mob. Ten different outfitters, fifteen different outfitters that all have their camera on there. Everybody gets the picture at the same damn time. Everybody freaking flocks and shows up at the same time. They all screw the pooch on each other and they just freaking, it, it becomes poetic justice. You all screwed each other <coughs> and it becomes this freaking fiasco and the bull's probably going to take off and survive anyway. So I think it's self-regulated. I think it's, I, I would much rather have a cellular camera on the landscape rather than a regular cellular cam or regular game camera. <coughs> Got a little too loud there. Hold on. So anyway, I start blasting. Um, I I do. I'd rather see, I, I would love to see someone try that and say, if you want to run a game camera, you're only allowed to run a cellular camera because of the reduced impact on and disturbance of wildlife. And you can't say, oh, Chris, you can't say make that. Well, hold on a minute. We absolutely do. You're allowed to muzzleloader hunt in Colorado. However, you're not allowed to muzzleloader hunt with a muzzleloader that has a scope on it. You're only allowed to use open sights. We can restrict use of equipment for a re, for a, a for a tangible real reason. A lot of these it could be an arbitrary reason. Same thing in Colorado. You're not you're allowed to use a rangefinder, but you are not allowed to use a rangefinder that's built into your sights on your bow. Okay? So you're allowed to use a rangefinder, but you're not allowed to use this type of rangefinder. It's the same thing with a cell, uh, with a game camera. You're allowed to use a game camera, but the game camera has to be a cellular camera linked. Oh, you don't have cellular reception there? Your your camera can't connect here? Well, then you can't put a game camera there. Too bad, so sad. I, I'm telling you, most of the time people are opposed to things that they don't understand and have very little experience with. I run cellular cameras extensively out here. We've got a pile of them. I love them. I absolutely love them because I don't have to go into places and disturb them. And and there's literally no, and this is not an exaggeration, at no time has there ever been a situation where a buck showed up on camera and then all of a sudden we go in and we kill that deer. Uh, None. Zero. Zip. Yes, does a buck show up on camera from time to time? Sure. Bam, that's the one we're after. All right, we need to go in there. They still, they, they can still smell you. They can still see you moving around. The, the environment is the same. They can move however and wherever they want on the landscape. It's still a hunt. I just happen to know that the deer is in the area. Okay, if that's an unfair advantage, okay, guilty as charged. That's an unfair advantage. But, geez, oh, Pete, I don't have to disturb the area at all. All I need to do is make sure the batteries are running, and most cellular cameras will tell you what the battery status is. Anyway, so, oh, sorry, 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 sorry. But the other flip side is, is and this is the, I talked about this too. It's going to be interesting, in Utah especially. Because in Utah, now I don't have a lot of experience in Utah, but I know I've seen a lot of pictures in Utah. 
And some of these are kind of remote wallows, to, you know, tucked back in these little hidden places. Now, there might be multiple cameras on these little wallows, but same thing goes. A lot of times it is, and this is the same for Arizona, a lot of times the people that are running the most game cameras are the ones that are outfitting and they're trying to find the cream of the crop, the biggest of the big in that unit. And so maybe there's a 420-inch bull in a particular unit, you know, Utah unit. And everybody's got their game cameras running and trying to figure out where that bull is. Again, like I just mentioned earlier, you'll have these big bulls that will occupy and they'll run a certain area. Maybe there it's just only one area of the unit. And the rest of the unit, they might not frequent. Well, by having a game camera and having and a lot of outfitters and other people that run game cameras reliant upon game cameras, if a particular bull starts showing up on a game camera in a particular area, they're going to focus their efforts there, which means they're going to leave the rest of the unit alone. They're not going to be spending much time in those areas. If Again, they're chasing a 420. Well, that 420 only lives in a certain area. They're not going to bother with the rest of the area of the unit, okay? Which means all the other people that don't give a crap about, you know, shooting that particular 420, if they see a 340, 350, 360 bull, and they're like, that's good enough for me, or that 300, 320, 330 bull, that's good enough for me, well, they kind of get the rest of the unit to themselves or, or the most of the other areas that the outfitters aren't interested to themselves. Well, you take away the game camera. Now the only way that the outfitters are going to be able to know where that 420 is running is by sending themselves and their guides and their helpers and the hunter's friends and everybody else across the landscape of the unit, boots on the ground, searching. Now, if you're in a unit that lends itself to glassing from a distance, great. I hope that's the case because at least then they're stationary and they're looking across at large areas without going in and just tearing up the landscape. But if you're in thicker cover where you can't glass, then I think the unintended consequence about banning game cameras is going to be you actually might find that there's more disturbance across the greater landscape. It's... Okay, maybe it's I'll be a, a little bit more of a random disturbance, but now we have more disturbance by more people across a broader area of the landscape while everybody's searching to lay eyes on that 420 that jar, you know, gargantuan bull. You may actually find we actually have more conflicts and more interactions of sportsmen or hunters in the field without the use of game cameras than if we did have the game cameras that were allowing the outfitters and those people that were hell-bent on killing the biggest of the biggest of the big to focus on one small area of the unit. It's going to be interesting to see how it plays out. I don't know. But I absolutely can see where mm, sometimes the unintended consequences are worse than the the problem you were trying to, the quote-unquote problem that you were trying to solve. We're going to find out how good some of these outfitters are and, and some of these hunters are. Are they really good hunters or are they just really good camera technicians? That's going to be interesting to find out. But, you know, time time's going to tell. I mean, that it, there you are. Time will tell. Uh, bump, bump, bump. All right, two more. I'm a, you know what? I'm not even... I had a bunch on this one. I'm looking at the time. It's, it's, we've been... 
I've been jawjacking for a little bit. Uh, the Colorado Senate Bill 22-031, uh, the bill that was intended to shut down mountain lion, bobcat, and lynx hunting in Colorado. Uh, people wanted to know why I was kind of silent on that um, and what I felt about it. I'm happy that it's defeated, um, but I am not ready to throw up my hands in victory and, and do victory laps. I've played this game long enough with animal activists. Um, sportsmen won a skirmish. Um, we, we, we won a victory, if you will, over a little skirmish. I don't, I don't see this as a permanent victory yet. There's already rumors about, uh, resurrecting this in some other form or fashion. And I really do believe this was nothing more. If it, if it moved through the, and, and actually became a law, then great. I don't think that was the actual intent. I think this was actually, uh, testing the waters and setting themselves up for a ballot initiative. So I'm not ready to, to throw my hat in the ring without everybody else that's patting themselves on the back and, and declaring victory. Now, what I will say, what I will say is a victory. And, and I'm very, very happy to see, very proud to, 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 to witness is the number of sportsmen that did get mobilized that are, that did mobilize and get active, uh, that sent in comments, that called, that wrote, that, that, that were engaged, man. Again, I I think I'm going to hold this, uh, the bigger discussion of this, um, for a separate podcast episode. Maybe I can, I can try to work on that maybe this week. Let's see. um, Let me see. Let me see. Um, but regardless, um, that is something that is that sh- everyone should be proud of and commit to continuing because that's the other thing that to time will tell. We have this flash, you know, I, I hope it's not a flash in the pan, but you've seen this flurry of activity of people just outraged and all of a sudden all these 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 podcasts discussing you know like the or like the howl for wildlife and blood origins and and all this just this this whirlwind of momentum i'm hoping that continues and just wasn't basically a pot boiling over and it flares up and oop we pull the pot off the pan and everything dies down and then it just there it is um that's not how politics works, and that's not how these animal activists work. And I have, a, I, I'm, I'm really worried that many people that are engaging in the process now have a a significant lack of understanding animal activist groups, and have never actually engaged and worked with animal activist groups, understand their value sets, understand their motivation, understand their tactics, and understand the long game. Um, I have dealt with that uh, in my uh, row ecological services career quite a bit. Um, so that's why I, let me save that for a bigger discussion. Got don't no no two ways, two ways about it. Am I happy that it was defeated? Absolutely. And and these other ones across the United States that that you know some of them have been defeated. Other ones have you know. Um, absolutely, I'm happy. I, I'm absolutely happy. But I but it, but it's not. We're not at the point of, of celebration. 
Okay, in my opinion, we're we're we are we should not be celebrating right now. We want to skirmish. We better darn well plan. There's going to be another battle or two because we are going to be in a protracted war. Okay, it, it, it politically and the ba- the way society is going these days, where most people are making their decisions based off of emotion, not logic. Um, this is going to be a longer, longer war and we're going to have some battles ahead of us. This was a little skirmish. Um, anyway, I'll leave that for right now, but no kudos to everybody who they got involved. Kudos to you for, for getting motivated, getting engaged, reaching out, doing the work. So awesome. That, that I think is a victory. The, the, the mobilization and unification of sportsmen is something that I have not seen, um, a in a long time, but that was the, that was my one, number one frustration when I was involved with political issues, sportsman issues in Colorado, is the quote unquote conservative mindset. I'm not talking about Republicans versus Democrats. I'm just talking about those people that believe in process oriented, you know, a conservative value set. Getting them to show up, even to defend themselves, was you know I I always tell I said all the time. I don't need you guys to show up and ram your ideology down someone else's throat. I just need you to show up and defend yourself because the progressive ideology, whether it was animal activists or quite honestly, there's sportsman groups out there that are, that are lean far left that are progressive ideology that man, there's numerous times where they would always, they are the ones that are always going to show up. The progressives are always going to show up and you know, I've, I've said it before, the world is run by those who show up, you know, and the progressives always do. And so even sportsman issues, there was left-leaning sportsman it, groups that would show up to a policy discussion or a commission meeting or a, a legislative issue. They would push something and they'd, they'd get up there and say, our organization represents so-and-so, th- this many people, and the sportsmen of Colorado want this. And I'd be like, the hell they do. Your ideology wants that, but no one else wants that, okay? And and maybe their group represented 10,000 people. They, they claim, we represent 10,000 people and the sportsmen of Colorado want this. You're full of shit. But then the next progressive group gets up there and say, we're progressive group such and such and such. And we have, uh, our membership is 10,000 people and, and the sportsmen of Colorado want this. And you're like, okay, bullshit. Okay, so here it is. It was me, Chris. I'm up there as the representative. I'm I'm carrying the message. So now it's it's what it was one against one, and now it's one against two because it's on based on testimony and how much interaction the the legislators get. And then you can have a third progressive group gets up there, does the same thing. What the legislators never knew is all three of those groups have the same ideology, same mindset, and hell, most of their members are all the same damn members. They're just members of each one of those organizations. So 10,000 people weren't... It looked like 30,000... Three different groups represented a total of 30,000 people. No, it was 10,000 people, all the same damn people, just counted three different times. Meanwhile, I'm up there trying to hold my own. I'm like, guys, I need people to back me up here. No. Could you get people to show up? No. It, It drove me nuts. There were people that did, don't get me wrong, It was, but there wasn't enough. There wasn't what we saw in these, especially with 22031. No. So 
what we saw recently and and, and this little I'll say little mini movement right now we'll see if it becomes a big movement and if it's sustaining or not if it's lasting um, is freaking awesome I would have loved to have had that uh, back in the day but um, yeah we'll talk more about that later but no kudos to everybody involved the big win here as far as I'm concerned is the unity and and the cooperation and mobilization of sportsmen. All right, and then lastly, this has come up a couple times, and so there was one more person that, um, pardon me, I probably creaks and cracks and pops and smacks and everything else. I just moved the microphone because I need to look. So this has come up numerous times. People ask, they see in the back of me when I'm you know doing the videos or whatever, they'll see a bunch of books in the back, and they're just all a lot of my professional resources and books that I've used and I've collected over the years, uh, wildlife biology books, uh, habitat, eco- you know, ecology books, behavior books, uh, habitat books. And so there's a lot of folks that want to know, you know, what I recommend, you know, what books do I, do I recommend if they, if they want to, you know, get some of these things? Well, num- number one, a lot of these are older, you know, I mean, heck, I got some of these, she's 20 some years ago. So I'm sure there's other editions. I am sure that there's probably more modern versions of these. And quite honestly, there's probably, uh, some of them that are even better than what I have behind me, but it comes up enough to where, let me rattle off at least a few of them that, that folks have been asking for. So obviously the number one resource that as far as a book that I've gone to numerous times is North American Elk Ecology and Management, uh, Toll and Thomas. Now, I've heard that that is not in print anymore, and to get one of those copies, it's, you know, you can find them. The, the, the person that messaged me said there was one for, or that the wrote the comment there, it was like, you know, for $800 or whatever. It's like, jeez. The, but the, the funny part is, is the reality is, I don't know if someone came into my office right now and said, I'll give you $800 for that book. I don't know if I'd take it really because <laughs> it's just a good book. I mean, it's got so much good information in it. Uh, so North American Elk Ecology and Management is probably my number one resource that I've, that I've uh, tapped into as far as elk goes, elk specific. Um, but next to that, uh, if you like pronghorn, um, and you want to learn about pronghorn ecology and management, there is a book that's called Pronghorn Ecology and Management uh, by O'Gara and Yoakum. Uh, o apostrophe G-A-R-A is how you spell that. O'Gara and Yoakum, Y-O-A-K-U-M. Uh, pronghorn Ecology and Management, that's a pretty darn good one. Um, obviously, I have my mammals uh, book. Uh, you know, just mammals of Colorado that you'll get. I mean, you can find any mammalogy book, you you know, whatever state you're in, you can probably find one. But Mammals of Colorado is a pretty darn good book. Um, James P. Fitzgerald, uh, Karen Meany, who I know, she's, a, she's, she's legit. She's got, yeah. And then uh, David Armstrong. So those three authors... James Fitzgerald, Karen Meany, and David Armstrong, Mammals of Colorado. I will, um, and it's through the the Denver Museum of Natural History is, I think, who published it. Uh, That's a really good one that I often use as well when I'm going back and just revisiting some some things. 
But there's a lot of other ones. Uh, the biology and management of the cervidae. So deer species from everything from moose all the way down to, you know, pretty much exotic uh, deer. That's a Wemmer, W-E-M-M-E-R is the author of that one. And it's through the Smithsonian. Um, let me, let me, let me, well, no, let me, uh, cause I'm trying to, I'm trying to, oh, well, there, there we go. Uh, there's the other one, uh, mountain sheep of North America, uh, edited by Paul Val, or excuse me, Raul Valdez and Paul Krausman, um, out of Arizona, uh, university of Arizona press. Uh, great. It's at, if you like bighorn sheep and you want to learn about the mountain sheep of North America, this is a good book. Valdez and Krausman, K-R-A-U-S-M-A-N. Um, again, University of Arizona Press. Uh, Paul Krausman, definitely a legit uh, researcher and well-known down in Arizona. Uh, in my former days on Row Ecological Services, again, my experience for, with animal activists, large in it, including HSUS. I've sat across the table from HSUS um, dealing with projects. Um, a lot of them dealt with blacktail prairie dogs on the front range of Colorado. And and then um, Gunnison's prairie dogs down in New Mexico. Um, John Hoogland uh, wrote uh, The Blacktailed Prairie Dog. That's the name of it. Chicago Press. Uh, the, or excuse me, the University of Chicago Press. Um, it is, if you want to learn about the social life, there it is, the, the black-tailed prairie dog, social life of a burrowing mammal. It's a pretty thick book. There's a lot to it, and it's pretty fascinating. Uh, there's a lot of people that, that claim to hate prairie dogs, but I would argue you don't know a thing about prairie dogs because they are one of the most fascinating little critters to work with. Yes, can they be a destructive rodent pest? You're darn right they can. But are they absolutely fascinating from their social structure and their vocalization, communication, behavior, uh, how they set? The, I mean, just they're they're incredible. That's why they are probably behind. I, I would dare say behind elk in Colorado. I could. I think I could make the case that elk are the number one watchable wildlife in Colorado. Prairie dogs would be number two. I'd take that bet, and, and I think that'd be a fun debate. Um, what else? I mean, there's a pile of it as well. The other one is a practical guide to producing and harvesting white-tailed deer uh, from Dr. Kroll. That's a good one. It's an older one. It's an older uh, edition. Um, Dr. James Kroll. It's a, it, I mean, there's a lot of information in there if you like white-tailed deer. I will tell you a modern one that is absolute goldmine. If you like, if if you are a deer manager or, uh, let's just say you like white-tailed deer and you and you want to get into wildlife or uh, excuse me, food plots and management and all that type of stuff and just doing what you can do as a DIY deal. I really believe that you need to buy this book, uh, Wildlife Food Plots and Early Successional Plants, from Craig Harper. Uh, phenomenal. You can get this through, you should be able to still get this through the National Deer Alliance website. Again, it used to be the Quality Deer Management Association. 
that's the same place I was telling you about. If you wanted to get the fetal scale, um, you you can get those fetal scales through there. This is one of the books that you can buy through in their management or education section. It's phenomenal. I mean, it's it's legit phenomenal. Wildlife food plots and early successional plants from Dr. Harper. Now, granted, it is going to be geared more towards what those habitats you're going to find uh, in that, I would say, eastern Kansas through Missouri, Tennessee. Now, he's I think he's based out of Tennessee, but um, you're, it's going to be more that eastern Midwest to the east, all right? So just keep that in mind. If, you, if you're out in my neck of the woods, there's a lot in there that it's going to be uh, relevant and pertinent and good information for you to have, but you're going to have to qualify a bunch of the other stuff. So it, just, it is what it is. Um, quality whitetails. That's another one that, that's an older book, but that was a good one. I've got this thing dog-eared eight ways from Sunday from way back in the way back in the day. Um, producing quality whitetails. That's another book. I, all these I think you can still get through the. Uh, QDMA, or uh, sorry, National Deer Alliance. Um, and then if you're interested in habitat type stuff, there's, again, these are old ones. Uh, Kansas State University put out back in the day, Increasing Wildlife on Farms and Ranches is the name of the book. Um, there's also uh, Rangeland Wildlife. Again, Paul Krausman. Uh, this was put together by the Society for Range Management. Rangeland Wildlife is a really good book uh, for rangeland stuff. There's also Managing Forested Lands for Wildlife. That was put out in con uh, a partnership between Colorado Division, back in the day when it was Colorado Division of Wildlife, Colorado Parks and Wildlife, and the U.S. Forest Service. Again, it's an older version, but I'm sure that you might be able, I can't be say, I can't say you're sure. Uh, it'd be, let, let me just rephrase that. It would be interesting if there's a, a more updated version, given all the beetle kill and the sudden Aspen syndrome, you know, death syndrome, and some of the other stuff that's been going on in Colorado forests, yeah, forests over the past decade or two. It'd be interesting if they've updated that. I might have to check that out. If if you're listening and you do and you beat me to it, let me know if they've updated that. But it's managing forested lands for wildlife. That's a good one that I've got dog-eared and marked or. Uh, you know, sticky notes in. Uh, another one that I really liked was research and management techniques for wildlife and habitats. Now, the the last one I have is the fifth edition. The fifth edition uh, revised. Um, who's it from? Well, edited, edited, edited by Theodore Bookout. It's already worn off. Theodore Bookout, Research and Management Techniques for Wildlife and Habitats. Um, that's a good one. There's another one called, and that was originally put out through the Wildlife Society. So you might go to, and that's what it's called, the Wildlife Society. The Wildlife Society is a professional organization for uh, wildlife biologists and managers, of which I'm a member again. I used to, so they used to, if you remember back in the day, I used to be Chris Rowe, CWB which stood for Certified Wildlife Biologist. Certified Wildlife Biologist is professionally certified by the Wildlife Society. You meet all these requirements and blah, 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 blah. Um, 
The only reason why I'm not CWB now is because politically the organization moved way farther left and environmental leaning, in my opinion, my in Kelly's opinion, uh, my wife's opinion. She's a wildlife biologist too. Um, she actually sat on the certification board. So if you want to become professionally certified as a wildlife biologist, you have to apply. And there's a board, a panel of, of, of people that review your application. It's not only your education, but all of your work experience and, and, and subsequent education, uh, your entire, your, your body of work. What, what are you, what have you done as a biologist? Do you meet certain criteria? And if they all agree, or at least if there's a majority that agree that you should be certified, then they will bestow upon you that certification of being certified wildlife biologist. Well, Kelly sat on, my wife sat on that certificate certification board for I don't remember how many years, um, but <clears throat> she ultimately we both kind of walked away from the organization for a while. Uh, it just started going way farther left leaning, environmentally leaning than than made us comfortable. So obviously, if we leave the organization, they're not going to continue our certification. So my both of ours lapsed. I did go ahead and um, I'm a member back again simply because their publications are awesome. As a, as a wildlife manager, as a wildlife biologist, it, it, there's just so much. There's It's how you stay connected. And so I went ahead and got my membership again. I'm debating on whether I want to get CW, CWB again or not. Um, I, it's not that it ever brought me any work, but it's a nice way to set your, you know, separate yourself from everybody else. But, um, regardless it's through the wildlife society that these books are through the wildlife society, even though I don't, I guess the relevant, what I'm trying to say is I don't think you need to be a member of the wildlife society to purchase stuff through their store. And so I think like, for instance, again, research and management techniques for wildlife and habitats. I haven't looked to see if there's an updated version Again, I have the fifth edition revised, um, and then you have the techniques for wildlife investigations and management. There, it's, this is the sixth edition that I have. I don't know if they have an updated edition. Each one's a little bit different as far as what they cover. Um, that one's edited by, edited by Clay E. Braun, I think is what it is. Yeah, see, no. Clay brought that. See, they're they're just they're half worn off. The ink's half worn off of them. So that's another one. If you want to get into behavioral ecology type stuff, I've just got. I don't have a lot of the the recent stuff, um, but you know, an introduction to behavioral ecology by Krebs and Davies is one that I have. Concepts of ecology, uh, Corm by Cormandy. Oh. And then I want another one that you might be able to find that's an interesting read. Now, again, it's it's old. Um, and so some of the stuff is, may, I won't say outdated, but it's just been updated and, and made better. And maybe there's some different philosophies these days, but it's an interesting read, is uh, Aldo Leopold. Everybody, you know, from a wildlife biologist manager standpoint, Aldo Leopold is the, the father of modern wildlife and conservation management in the United States. You know, the North American model of wildlife conservation. So Aldo Leopold is most known for his book, The Sand County Almanac. Um, but he also wrote the book called Game Management. 
Um, it's probably about, oh, probably an inch thick paperback. Um, interesting. There's a lot of interesting stuff in there. So if you are, you just like to read and you like to read this type of stuff, definitely see if you can't track one of those down. Mine's an old, obviously it's an older version, but I mean, it's not, he's not, I mean, he's dead. He's no longer around. This is back in the, what, 30s and 40s, I think. Um, so anyway, mine's all tattered, but I'm sure you can, it's got to be still in print somewhere. I'm, I've, I've got to believe that you could find one. Um, oh, and then the other one I've used a bunch, um, range development and improvements. Again, um, it's fine. You know, a lot of people, again, like I said, with Dr. Harper's book on wildlife food plots and early successional plants, that really, it's talk about old field type stuff and woodland type habitats and successional forests and all that type of stuff. But when you move out into the Western Plains and, you know, Eastern Colorado type stuff, so either the, well, there, there you go, this, the cent, you know, the Western Plains, the grasslands, that ecosystem is really different. And so having, that was kind of one of my minors in college was rangeland, you know, management. Um, that's a good book. Range Development Improvements. Uh, range Development and Improvements. Uh, the one I have is the third edition. It's by Valentine. Um, it's from the academic press. But what else we have? Did I say, yeah, I said rangeland wildlife. Did I say it right? I think I said rangeland wildlife already. So anyway, that's, I mean, that's, that's the vast majority. I mean, that's pretty much the vast majority. I've got some other ones in there as well, but um, that's the vast majority of, of the books that I've got back behind me that, that I just keep as far as references and reference material. Um, I don't, obviously I'm not, pulling from them every week but every now and then if i've got to look something up or refresh my memory on something that that's what i other than the internet that's what i fall back to so anyway that was a long ramble <clears throat> so let's see i don't think there's anything else that we need to cover this week i'll uh keep sending the questions i know uh, i i trust me i i I'm getting to some of your other questions. Um, anyway, keep sending them. Again, the best place to send them, either send them an email or send them through uh, Instagram, The basically the messenger there, the, the direct message through Instagram. That's the best way to do it. Um, and, uh, yeah, hopefully that helps. But um, we'll have some other discussions here coming up regarding some of the political stuff. I'm just, I want to wrap my head around a couple things and refresh my memory on a couple things. And I want to investigate a couple other little things before we have some deeper conversations with that, because, um, politically, I think more of these issues are going to come up and I think we're going to have to be really, really smart about how we tackle them and, and not fall into temptation of, of being, um, cocky, um, arrogant um and especially when we're cocky and arrogant in our ignorance and and i don't mean that in a disrespectful manner i just mean if you're not if you have not actually played if you've not danced the dance with an animal activist group or ideology 
or a belief system, um, you're at a disadvantage long-term. Maybe we'll talk about some of that. So, alrighty, uh, I'm going to kill it for now. That was a long one. I know, I'm sorry if it was dragging on, but I wanted to tackle those because these are ones that have come up repeatedly that uh, I thought were worth at least chatting about tonight. So, alrighty, uh, until next time, yeah, stay safe and we'll talk soon. All right, thanks much. Appreciate it.